Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. And I'm recording for Contrarian's Corner for Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. It's like this. We live in claustrophobia, the land of steel and concrete. Trapped by dark waters, there is no escape, nor do we want it. We've come to thrive on it in each other. You can't get the adrenaline pumping without the terror, good people. I love this town. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host and goddamn fine, handsome man, Julio Oliveira. Julio, we needed kind of something to plug up the dam here to bridge us in our episodes. <laughs> I think we picked quite the, the movie to do so. I feel like Jason could have used, you know, a Dutch boy to put his thumb in the dam at the end of this movie. But here today, this evening, we're going to discuss one of my... I, I can't even say guilty pleasures at this point, because I will be boastful of how much I love this movie. We're here today to discuss the final Paramount entry of the 1980s in the Friday the 13th franchise with Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. We've arrived, Julio, at a Friday the 13th movie in not a minute too soon. I mean, it feels like we'd already done a Friday the 13th movie just because Jason Voorhees has come up so often. <laughs> not just this particular installment, just in general, you know, and even we've we've tackled other big horror franchises we've we've done a couple nightmares we've done a whole bunch of halloweens texas Uh, chainsaw massacre yeah yeah i I guess we needed to complete i mean after this one are we missing any icon Uh, or or who chucky i guess but as i've mentioned before i don't really he's not in the same field uh for me in the same breath as the the you know the the big four which would be freddie jason leatherface and michael so we're, we've rounded out the quartet here. I'm not quite sure, you know, that would comprise a lot of people's horror Mount Rushmore's. Uh, I don't know if I'm ready to go that far yet, but that's the my mask that I got at the beginning of the pandemic. My horror mask has those four on it, so there you go. So you just you just threw me a curveball right there at the beginning, Alex. Mm-hmm. Do you say this is like the end of the '80s? Because I was, I mean, I'm not I'm not the guy that does the research here on the podcast. That's <laughs> you. I just I just write down funny stuff, but. <laughs> When I was uh, when I was pulling my quotes from the from the app that I use that's connected to Rotten Tomatoes, so it listed the release date as July twenty eighth, nineteen ninety eight. So that's wrong. Uh, that is a case of um, is that dyslexia when you see things backwards? I oh, is it eighty nine? It's eighty nine. Yeah. Well, God, <laughs> the confusion of you watching this movie thinking it was in nineteen ninety eight. Uh, one of my notes says, this feels more 80s than 90s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
It most certainly was. Yes, it was. Uh, I kind of tried to jumble a bunch into that sentence, that uh, qualifying sentence about the movie. Last Friday the 13th of the 80s, it was also the last Paramount uh, produced Friday the 13th after a decade of raking in the cash. They had finally said they saw this and they said no moss. Uh, but it was <laughs> July 28th of 1989. Jason hopped on the Lazarus and traveled to New York City. That's the name of the boat, the Lazarus. Man, come on. Are you, were you even paying attention to the movie? I've seen it once, Alex, last <laughs> night. You've seen it, what, 50 times? I have the franchise pulled up here. I'm trying to think if it's the one I've seen the most times. Tell by the wear and tear on the disc. Well, uh, that segues just let's go ahead and get this part out of the way. You watched it streaming, is that correct? That is correct. Stars has this one. Uh, I think at least because of the suggestions that came up after the the end credits rolled, I think they have all of them, or at least maybe all the Paramount ones. Um, no, the one I watched, and I don't know if you if you noticed on the screenshot I posted on on Twitter, they shortened it. It's just Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight Manhattan. Fuck Jason Takes. <laughs> Manhattan. It's much cleaner. It's that cleaner. Way. Yes. That would make sense, though. For a while, Hulu had the rights to streaming the eight Paramounts. I watched. There was no wear and tear on this because it was my first viewing uh, the maiden voyage of the Blu-ray that came in the Friday the 13th box set that was released last year that I got for Christmas. I would slowly been kind of going through the, the Blu-rays in there, and this was my... First viewing of this, I believe Shout Factory is the one that released that. They're always really good about transfers, and to no surprise, the transfer of this was fantastic. Actually had a gag reel on it, of all things. I was about to ask if it had lots of special features, or is it just like there's one disc that is all the special features at the end? Uh, so there's like the disc that has a lot of special features, but then there's also each of them individually kind of have anything that was released with the original releases of them. Uh, I think you posted it either on our Facebook or our Twitter, but it also has a theatrical trailer that's horrendously misleading, but also starts with New York, New York. It's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> and then in addition to that box set, I have, as has been discussed at some point, uh, I mentioned watching Crystal Lake Memories, which is that very, very mm -hmm. thorough documentary on the franchise. And this one is honestly one of the more well-documented ones. One for its poor reception uh, and... Two, for the very lackluster box office return that it had. And then three, how the movie basically dissolved from what it was originally going to be into what we got because uh, they were anticipating, they, I mean the filmmakers, were uh, anticipating a, a much bigger budget than they were given. Rob Hedden is the gentleman who wrote and directed this film. And he had some dreams of grandeur coming into this and... They were just like, hey, remember all that money we told you we're going to give you? We're not going to, so you guys got to shoot most of this in Canada. So have fun. Yeah, it looks like Mr. Head didn't really make anything else uh, of notoriety. So, Julio, to set the table here, heading into Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. I'm going to go down the list of the, the ones that led into this and see how up to speed you are on it. Have you seen the original Friday the 13th with Kevin Bacon? No, but I know it has Kevin Bacon in it, and I know the big twist. It was the mom all along. It was. Betsy Palmer. Have you seen Friday the 13th Part 2, where Jason has overalls and like a burlap sack over his head? I was about to say, the one with the with the paper bag mask? I've seen that one. Okay. I don't remember a thing about it. He's skinny okay. in that one, right? Yeah, and he runs. 
it's a change of pace. It's That's okay. Not Jason. The opening is awesome. Part three, Friday the 13th, 3D, where he gets the hockey mask and a lot of the kills and effects in it do not translate to modern televisions. But if you had those blue and red glasses on, oh boy, were they a humdinger. Have you seen that one? I thought I had, but I don't remember ever seeing Crispin Glover in a Friday the 13th movie. So that's part that's four. That's the one with him, right? Part four is Crispin Glover. Oh, then maybe I've seen this one. Because I remember the, the what they use for hay in a, in a barn. Pitchfork? Yeah. Isn't there like a moment where there's like the pitchfork coming at the camera? I think he uses a pitchfork in two also. It's been a while since I've seen three. I just, the main thing you would remember if you've seen it was Shelly, who's like the, the fat kid with the fro, looks kind of like me. He's the practical joker that like fakes his death at one point. And they're all like, Shelly. And then when he actually gets killed, like no one really believes him until he gets like shot through the head with a fucking dart gun. I don't remember any of this. So maybe, maybe I've only seen the, the trailer for part three. Friday the 13th, part four, the final chapter, LOL. Uh, you just mentioned you had not seen that because that's the one with Crispin Glover and also uh, Corey Feldman. And Friday the 13th, part four is like the closest to a good movie there has been in the Friday the 13th franchise. I say that being unapologetic fan. What I mean by that is it's the closest to like a coherent story, decent acting woven together pretty well. And the guy who plays Jason in it is awesome. What's his name? He was just some like old timey stuntman who knew nothing about the franchise. Ted White was his name. He apparently like just grew to really hate Corey Feldman while filming it. So even though Corey Feldman was like twelve or thirteen, he was like unnecessarily rough with them in some of the takes that they did. So it's it's awesome. But you haven't seen that. You do have Crispin Glover in there dancing and being as Crispin Glovery as possible. That's the Halloween four of the Friday Thirteenth franchise, right? Because it ends with Corey Feldman becoming the new Jason. <laughs> kind of. And then of. they dropped it. Truncated version of the history here. The entire plan was that it was going to be the last one. Like Paramount. Paramount has always been embarrassed, or was always embarrassed. I don't know how they feel now, but because you know Paramount was the next to MGM, the pull your tie up and tighten it, make sure you're you're not square film studio. Like they were proud to be a film studio and make the classics and then you have this franchise of just for the time pretty much smut that people just went to at drive-in movie theaters to laugh at and it's making them ridiculous amounts of money but it got to a point where they were just like fuck it we have our standards and our values and we're gonna hold to it we're gonna make this one and it's gonna be the last one and it had a budget of two million dollars and it made over 30 million dollars so they're like <laughs> hey Jason, come on back here, pal. So then- John Paramount was like uh, John Cusack in Bulls of Broadway. He just opened the window of his apartment and went, I'm a whore. <laughs> Leads us to part five, A New Beginning. Julio, the quickest way you would recall if you've seen this one, it's the one where it's not Jason. It's a guy pretending to be Jason. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but you've told me about that. I will always remember it. Roy, yeah. That Corey Feldman, like, God, they had to put it in the future so that Tommy Jarvis was grown up, but they had to get Corey Feldman. Like, it was some ridiculous set of circumstances that went into his cameo in the beginning of it to kind of explain what happened. Because he would have been filming something big at the time, if not the Goonies. What year did the Goonies come out? 87, something like that. But whatever the case, hilarious uh, behind-the-scenes drama about that. And then Friday the 13th, part six, Jason Lives, where we reintroduce Jason, and it has like a James Bond type opening where Jason walks, you know, <laughs> parallel to the screen and then to the camera and then turns and 
slashes Shoots. at the camera. Yeah. Well, he slashes his machete and then like it kind of the blood comes out. If I remember correctly, the director of the movie had no idea that was in it until the premiere and was like, what the fuck is this? It's also when he heard the Madonna song that they'd done for the movie. <laughs> yes. He's like, why does Jason have a Pepsi logo on his jumpsuit? What the fuck? <laughs> That was the like the moving forward direction of hyper violence. Like the beginning of that movie is fucking insane. Like he pulls the dude's heart out. The kills in it are way more violent than what we had come to know up until that point. Kind of leads into what we'll get into about this one where they kind of take it back a little bit and make it a bit more fun. Because, yeah, some of the shit in that was very grotesque. And part seven is the when one of the ad wizards at Paramount thought, what if we made a movie where Jason fights Carrie? Because uh, that was the, the new blood, part seven, in which a young lady with telekinesis battled with Jason. Tina Shepard. Oh, but, no, another Tina. <laughs> most notably... That was the Friday the 13th that had Terry Kaiser in it. Alive? It, yes. Well, for at least part of the movie. And part seven for diehards of the franchise. We'll note that as the debut of Kane Hodder, who would play Jason in 7, 8, Jason Goes to Hell, and Jason X. Uh, it's okay. They made it in a similar vein to where the violence was insanely hyper and to the borderline like grotesque on some of them. And then the studio just repeatedly slashed slashed had like an x rating i don't even know if the all of the footage that was shot like terry kaiser's death there's like really shitty vhs footage of it of him just getting completely like disemboweled but a lot of that movie made the cutting room floor at least the kill scenes excuse me there's some of it that lives on in the blu-rays that have come out in the day but some of it is jason's patron lost forever you got to go to jason's only fans to see the the real <laughs> terry kaiser death that brings us to jason takes manhattan which we will cover here uh in full momentarily followed up of course by jason goes to hell the final friday have you seen, seen that, that one? one okay yep. there you go and i've seen jason x and i've seen freddy versus jason and i've seen uh the friday 13th remake so i'm actually making my way backwards yeah, i was about to say you just started on the wrong side of history is basically what happened <laughs> so that certainly paints a picture of how we're going into this uh and of course the remake from 2009 is when paramount came back around and said hey we would like to make some money again which they did <laughs> almost 100 million dollars sandwiched in the middle here Friday the 13th, part eight, Jason takes Manhattan, the end of the chapter with Paramount and one of the more divisive entries in the franchise amongst fans. Uh, you know, most fans are like myself. And even when it, you know, it's the, the pizza or like the sex principle, even when it's bad, it's still pretty good. We, we found a, a way to enjoy these Friday the 13th <laughs> movies, but there are some people that favor some over others. And I am one that favors this one. Uh, I, I actually have it probably pretty high up on my list for reasons that we'll get into in real talk as Julio got so far ahead of ourselves here. We, we just go need to go ahead and explain what it is we do here. Julio, as we discussed, the reason we chose Friday the 13th part eight, Jason takes Manhattan is because on rotten tomatoes, it is the lowest rated at a meager 8%. Uh, and what we are here to do on the contrarians is rage against the rotten tomatoes machine. We will find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as certified fresh, and we will make a case for maybe why critics kind of overstated the claims of said film, and conversely, find one of those nasty green splotches. I mean, we typically shoot for about 30% and below, so this one just fell right into our lap. 
with 8%. But what we will do is find the positive merit in a film and talk about maybe some of the overlooked aspects uh, of the movie we're covering. So in this first portion, Contrarian's Corner, we're going to be talking about the good that came from Jason Takes Manhattan and what the aspects of it are uh, that should be celebrated. But uh, Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about it, uh, they just need to hang around for the second portion of this podcast. That's right. Once we get to the second half of the show, aptly titled Real Talk, that's when we are completely honest about our feelings. And listeners of the show already know, Alex, that you just love this shit. <laughs> You're all about your Jasons and your Michael Myerses and your Leatherfaces. So I can't imagine anybody expecting you to be anything but at the very least, mildly positive about this movie. On the other hand, last night was the first time I'd ever seen it, and uh, we also, listeners of the show, know that horror is not exactly my genre, so I tend to be a little more... uh, I play a little harder to get with these slasher movies. In previous horror installments, so Julio, Real Talk has definitely led to some interesting discussion because I'm very picky and selective. I mean, the greatest example is how much you gushed over uh, Halloween H2O and how much I just absolutely (laughs) detest that movie. Yes, but that's the outlier. <laughs> so, well, I, I say that to say the second portion of this definitely could be interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, even if I if I end up revealing that I like this movie, it might not be for the same reasons that you love this movie. So, yes, stick around for Real Talk, listeners, and uh, you'll see what our true cards are. All right, well, let's get to it. It is July 28th, 1989, and New York has a new problem. And our writer and director, Rob Hedden, has set the stage for Jason Voorhees to enter Times Square. Uh, be it at the time or since, this movie, outside of the circles of horror fans, has not been too highly regarded, as we mentioned, with the 8% rating. Amongst the the lower-rated movies we've done here in The Contrarian's Run, this being our 133rd episode. So, Julio, be it then, now, or forever, what were the critics saying about Jason Takes Manhattan? Uh, lots of green splotches in the Rotten Tomatoes website. Got a few here. Federico Forzan from Cinellipsis says, The worst movie in the series is also a complete scam for the viewer. He doesn't elaborate, but I think we all know. If you've seen the movie, you know what scam he's referring to. It's only one sex scene, and it happens <laughs> at the very beginning. Tim Brighton from Antagony and Ecstasy says an inscrutable narrative that pukes its way across an unforgivably long a hundred minutes. I kind of like the pukey aspect of the movie, like the the slimy Jason. Do we ever see a Jason that's this slimy anywhere else in the in the franchise? Uh, we see Jason like he's usually in the later ones when he gets unmasked. He's just very wet. His head is very wet, but he's not slimy. This one is like to a point where it's literally like dripping off of him. Just goop. <laughs> yeah. He looks like he fucking got it was it was Jason accepting an award at the Nickelodeon's Kids Choice Awards and just came on set right afterwards. <laughs> Finally, Ed Gonzalez from Slam Magazine says director Rob Hedden or Rob Hedden may have beat on to something from Crystal Lake to Manhattan. The series itself was always drowning in shit. I think he's making a reference to the climatic sequence in the sewers where they're they're flooded with toxic waste every night at midnight. <laughs> hey, New York in the 80s. Does this say where Rob Hedden's from? Oh, there you go. L.A. That's why. He fucking hates New York. <laughs> he wrote this movie just thinking about the Yankees winning the World Series again. We got a long ways to go, though, before we get to uh, Manhattan proper. Julio, when we do the Embrys this year, we may need to include a best original song category. So you're going to say best, uh, best opening voiceover. 
Well, the voiceover is one of those that is so good. I was looking for it. I always thought it was like a quote from like another movie or something. You know, it's like the Nero and Taxi Driver. The opening voiceover sets a different tone that does not follow up with the movie, <laughs> especially because we we quickly exit New York. But we have the opening credits here, which is like heaven for me, with the the red and white, the thick block letters, the eighties aesthetic with the original song, uh, "The Power of the Night" by Stan Messner, where where this song he didn't actually release on an album until two thousand, uh, but it was actually the the theme song for this. <laughs> The darkest side of the night burns like for the wasted lives. Did you think you were watching the wrong movie at first? Just the way this was shot, it was like a a New York romantic comedy to begin with, or like Big. You could get definite Big vibes until it says Jason Takes Manhattan. Uh, I don't know. I mean, well, maybe the the Big vibes from when uh, Tom Hanks finds his apartment, like his first apartment in, uh, in you know, downtown in the city. Yeah. And he's scared because there's like all the drug addicts and drunks and hookers surrounding the place. I, I think that combined with the, just with the voiceover, I, I, I didn't think romantic comedy. I just thought it was, we were in for this sort of thoughtful examination of life in the Big Apple. It's not how I expect a slasher movie to, uh, to start. But at the same time, I knew because you've, told me as much throughout the years that this was not your standard Friday the 13th movie. So I was like, sure. It basically starts like any movie of that time period. Muppets take Manhattan. Jason takes Manhattan. You know, it's it's all interchangeable. I'm surprised we actually didn't get a Muppets cameo in this. It was planned, but then, you know, the studio cut the budget. And Hilariously, that could be true. No, that it was planned. And then Kane Hodder, the guy who plays Jason, said no. There was a scene in this where he, I think he was supposed to kill the dog. Maybe not the, the lead dog, but a dog. And Kane Hodder was like, no, Jason wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. Dogs never did anything to Jason. They weren't mean to him. So let the trashing of New York City begin, as in these opening credits tuned perfectly with the song that I mentioned. Just all of this looks amazing. But we're getting shots of people getting mugged in alleys and people, you know, cooking, uh, like freebasing fucking heroin, cooking it up, robbing people. There's uh, the barrels of just toxic waste around the city. It's definitely in the Ninja Turtles, you know, that whole era of New York City that I was raised on in America and why I thought New York City was like the worst place in the world until I was maybe like 14 or 15. It seems like a lot of people had a grudge with New York City, but here with uh, Rob Hedden, he had the balls to just be upfront with it and start from the very beginning. He's like, yeah, hey, we'll get to Jason killing people. But first off, I'm going to tell you what the theme of this movie is, and it's that New York City fucking sucks. It, this makes a lot more sense now that I know it was uh, 1989 and not 1998. <laughs> Because I thought it was maybe a period. People were still freebasing heroin in 1998? <laughs> I mean, like I said, you know, they were, they were, it was just a throwback to the, the times before Rudy Giuliani cleaned the streets and, and New York was a civil place again. There wasn't, yeah, Seinfeld hadn't saved New York City yet. <laughs> we go from Times Square to Crystal Lake. It's high school graduation weekend. We start, as we always do, with two good-looking teens on Crystal Lake in a... like a houseboat and they're just kind of floating along. We know where this is going and they don't really waste any time. We get the explanation of, Hey, we're on crystal Lake and Jason Voorhees, you know, used to live here and terrorize and kill people. And he died here too. All the while the, like the anchor, this little dumb shit, this kid who I presume took his dad's boat uh, out with his girlfriend. That's 35 and just graduating. Uh, I, (laughs) 
I can't wait, Julio, for your take to see if this dethrones Greece for the movie with the oldest high schoolers or not. <laughs> but the anchor is dragging along the bottom while he's saying, you know, Jason's dead, though. And we see Jason just at the bottom of the lake buried under a pile of rubble. The anchor drags across the power line that runs through Crystal Lake, hits it, basically creates a, a spiritual awakening. Uh, and also just like a makeshift defibrillator underwater where it brings Jason back to life. This is a moment, Alex, where I'm like, okay, I know what kind of movie I'm watching. Like, yes. Electricity plus water equals life. That's it. Got it. I'm on solid ground from now on. I think that that helped me understand a little bit more coming into this, why the credits didn't mean as much to you, the, the discussion that we had uh, about which ones you've seen and which ones you haven't, because that was such like a game. It was like if... Um, a Star Wars movie, let's say that Return of the Jedi started with just like some ambient shots of Tatooine with the credits just like playing really calmly, uh, fading in and out. So really dunking on Tatooine, just like yeah. the Jawas mugging people. And- <laughs> some Tauntauns just shooting up. In the, in the, in- <laughs> the point I was trying to make, Julio, is the credits paint a different picture for this, and it takes us about 10 minutes to get where we know where we're going. And that's Jason pops up. Uh, kills Jim Miller and his girlfriend Susie. I mean, it's the prototypical Friday the 13th scene. He breaks them up in the act of sex, kills the dude, the chick takes off running, uh, but she just can't be quiet enough. It's basically what's laid the groundwork. Without this type of shit, you wouldn't have a Scream franchise because there'd be nothing to parody. These early movies don't get enough credit for giving the foundation for the things that we're going to make fun of. You can't make fun of something that doesn't exist. Somebody has to take that bullet. Somebody has to <laughs> just jump on that grenade and be the thing that everybody's going to make fun of in the future. We meet Jason's rival, the main the main character, the heroine of the movie, and that is Rennie, played by Jensen Daggett. Julio, we were spared yet another Elizabeth Berkley contrarian's appearance as she auditioned for this role but did not receive it. It's a damn uh, shame. Most importantly, Rennie brings along a dog that is fucking adorable. I can't remember its name now. Just to put everybody at ease, does the dog die.com? No, the dog doesn't die, which is great. One of the coolest things in this movie is that the dog makes it all the way to the end. And I mean, to the very, very end. And, and I guess now I've learned that uh, we have Kane Hodder to thank for that. The dog's name is Toby, by the way, Julio. The dog does not die. We have Kane Hodder to thank for that. We have a graceful, uh, family-friendly Jason. And we'll get to that a little bit later on as well. He, he saves the day in more aspects than one. <laughs> That's the whole point of the movie. It's just that there are many, many worse things than Jason in the world. The following day, after we see these initial kills, Principal Charles McCulloch and teacher Colleen Van Dusen take their students, uh, Rennie, Sean, Julius, Tamara, Eva, Wayne, Miles, and JJ on the Lazarus uh, for a cruise to New York City. You would think for a cruise celebrating something that they would have gotten a little bit nicer of a boat, but I guess this school was... Potentially just, you know, the white kids inner city school and all they could afford was this beat up hunk of shit. They don't care. They think it's cool. It's a booze cruise. It's a grad <laughs> booze cruise. I'm sure that's a, a few years down the line. Jim was going to tell Michael that he liked Pam in that same boat. <laughs> Peter Mark Richman is the gentleman who plays uh, Principal McCulloch. Very seasoned actor up until this point, having appearances on The Bionic Woman, Knight Rider, The Incredible Hulk, Matlock. Uh, Hawaii Five O, basically just anything of that time period. He was also on Star Trek: The Next Generation's first season. So there you go. So, so what you're telling me is that this guy was like DiCaprio's character in in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> yes, he was Rick Dalton. You know, he was he was like the villain of the week, and then Pacino came over to him and was like, you know, they're just using you 
to build up their own brand. Instead, why don't you come to Italy and make a, a Friday 13th movie with me? <laughs> Instead, come to Canada and shoot this, this horror picture. He brings the acting with a capital A-C-T-I-N-G to this film. And he is, for me, probably the most quotable character in this. He says right away, you know, before the, the ship sets sail is that, you know, uh, Jim and Susie aren't here. And I'm more than a little concerned. Meanwhile, in the background, their ship, like with blood smeared everywhere, just kind of their houseboat just wanders by. And the only person that sees it in an homage to the crazy vagrant from the original Friday the 13th is like this ship hand that uh, this vessel's doomed or voyage is what he calls it. He's the only one that's talking any sense and no one's going to listen to him, of course. There's family drama right off the bat as we come to find that uh, Principal McCulloch is actually the uncle of Rennie. Uh, it sounds like her parents died when she was young and he became her legal guardian. I don't know what the relationship between Colleen and McCulloch is. She's the one that brings Rennie along and he seems mad at her about it. And it really seems to be some kind of family infighting. We as the audience, though, don't really have much time to process that, nor is there any explanation really proffered by the filmmaker. Uh, but what they do is introduce Scott Reeves, the hunk of the movie, Sean, who laid the groundwork for what Luke Perry would look like in a few years. Yes. Uh, yeah, when you mentioned family drama, I thought you were going to talk about the fact that uh, this kid, his father is the captain of the boat, which maybe mm -hmm. that's how they got there. That's like he cut them a deal because, you know, it was his son's class. It's like, okay, you can get half price. Oh, yeah. I got the boat like really cheap. But I don't care that my son here is on his graduation trip. He's going to work. He's actually going to be the captain of the boat. It's um, like when your parents can't afford to have a Chuck E. Cheese birthday, so you get like Wally's pizza. And that's basically here. Sean's dad was like, oh, you know, 20 bucks and a carton of Marlboro's and you got yourself a deal. But then he's making his son cut the pizza. Yes. He, he, wants, he wants him to, to actually take control. You're forgetting of the, the Italian seasoning. This was, to me, the most compelling part of the movie. This this whole little arc of this this kid that doesn't... He has trouble living up to his father's expectations and then later his father's legacy. His father wants him to captain the ship in this opening scene, his introductory scene. He he tries, but then he can't. He, he has a freak out and storms away from the cabin. And, and then throughout the movie, it's basically the story of him regaining confidence and becoming a leader and somewhat saving the day with, uh, with the with the main girl. That to me, that was cool. That was an in. I, I always need to find something in a slasher movie that kind of carries me through all the kills and all the other characters. I mean, I guess you had the, the principal. I had this this kid, the, the kid that didn't want to be a sailor, but his dad wants him to. Not just Luke Perry, but um, James Vanderbeek laying the groundwork for daddy. I don't want your life type thing. Sean's dad was a true sailor though. I mean, he looks like he was at least 50 when he had his kid. So, you know, a, a woman in every port type thing. God knows where his mother is. The deckhand, yeah, tells Sean, this voyage is doomed. He says, tell me about it. Unbeknownst to everyone, though, <laughs> stowaway, Jason boards the Lazarus. He grabs onto the anchor and just kind of hunkers his way up solid snake style. Uh, Sean and Rennie, uh, there's obviously some romantic history here. And I, I really appreciate that uh, Rob Hedden didn't have to start the romance uh, you know, from the beginning, it's not like a bottle episode. There's clearly some backstory here that's left to the audience's interpretation. Uh, but it, it kind of seems to me like Sean and Rennie here were kind of on the outs and the the flame kind of reignites here on the Lazarus. I mean, that's what cruises are for. Exactly. Just throw those ashes and <laughs> get the sparks going again. The harbor is still within eyesight, but these kids are partying like crazy. There's uh, JJ, who's basically like 
the punk rocker character. Eh, punk rock wouldn't have been really in vogue in 1989. Got the guitar, the flying V, and uh, the big poofy hair. She's just really excited about recording her demo tape in all these different places of the Lazarus. She's being videotaped by Wayne, who I guess is a film student, uh, who Julio does not look any different than anyone you could find in downtown Austin right now in 2021. <laughs> the camera may be smaller today, <laughs> yes. but everything else is the same. Yeah, I appreciated the, 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 the fact that basically the musician and the filmmaker are buddies in this trip. They're both kind of outsiders, but they, they seem to have each other's backs. And she knows that he has a crush on... Uh, Tamara, the, the blonde bitch. I'm assuming she's a cheerleader. And that's I guess that shows my biases. <laughs> because she doesn't cheer a single time. But, you know, she's a blonde, attractive girl that seems to think she's better than everyone. Yeah, they, they, they have, they're, they're friends. And uh, I, I actually, foolishly, I thought that maybe these two characters were going to take us to to the end of the movie. I was like, oh, that's cool. Because, you know, the outsiders, usually underdogs, are kind of looked upon kindly by the gods of slasher filmmaking sometimes. But that wasn't the case. And I should have known because, you know, they already introduced the hunk and they introduced the the girl with issues. So those two were the ones that we were clearly going to follow. But still, for the, the short time that we had these other two, the artists and the crews, I, I like them. Yeah, unfortunately, though, JJ, we don't really get too much time with her. Wayne goes to try to sow his oats with Tamara. JJ goes to the, the bowels of this ship and just starts rocking out pretty hard. Jason follows her down there, takes her guitar and bashes her head in. It's definitely like I could have seen at the time this being used as the promo on MTV. You know, like right when he swings the guitar, Jason takes Manhattan. <laughs> While fucking Too Tough to Die by the Ramones or something plays in the background. I'm trying to think of what the big hit in 1989 was. Miss You Much by Janet Jackson. And Another Day in Paradise by Phil Collins. <laughs> there you go. Be sure to catch Jason Takes Manhattan in theaters this Friday. Up next, Another Day in Paradise by Phil Collins. Rennie is making her way through the ship. And at different points of it, she begins hallucinating. And for we, the audience, uh, this isn't something that you know Julio... Your back catalog of Friday the 13th may not be full, but you know the gist of it. Jason drowned in Crystal Lake many years ago. And Rennie here is seeing Jason in many different forms, uh, be it actually his physical form in front of her. But in a lot of cases, she's hallucinating and seeing him as a small child drowning. And obviously, she's really not knowing what to make of it. Sometimes he looks like Ken Jong. We learned pretty quickly that she has some massive fear of the water as well, for reasons yet to be explained. It starts to make McCulloch's trepidation of her being on the ship in the first place, it starts to make a lot more sense. Because the last thing you need on a boat when you're out and can't see land anywhere is someone that's, you know, going to be scared of water. It's like taking someone who is deathly afraid of flying on a flight to fucking Japan. It's just, it's a bad recipe. I mean, she's there under, I guess, this sort of delusion that this is the best way to confront her fears in a way, right? It's like, oh, well, you're afraid therapy. of water, then get in a boat. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something else that the movie does is just that, not necessarily. I mean, that might work for some people, but in like in this girl's case, it's actually the way that she ultimately conquers her demons is by not by coming at them straight on, but rather coming at them sideways. I mean, as we'll see as the story develops. But I'm glad that they kind of like set it up this way, right? She's she has a serious problem and she's going about it the wrong way. We meet the cool kids of the high school. First and foremost, Julius. So Julius in all caps on my notes right here. 
the most badass motherfucker in this whole boat. <laughs> Julius is a good-looking young kid. He, uh, I guess, is running a, a fight club type thing uh, on the boat as it's him just boxing with some people and really no adult supervision. But we have kind of the the skylight above them. We pan out and we see that we had mentioned Tamara before, who's the the blonde white bitch in this movie who's just mean. You know, I have mean girls written down here, but she's she's worse than Regina George because she she's tries worse to, than Jason. She, she is worse than Jason, uh, but she has her precocious friend Kelly Hugh of X Men Two fame. Who is she in X Men Two? Does she have powers? Yeah, she's she has the probably the most memorable fight scene in that movie with her and Wolverine. She's the one that has the claws that come out of her fingers, and he ends up oh, pumping her. Oh, she's yeah, Lady Deathstrike! Holy well, shit! Well, she's not Lady Deathstrike, but yeah, <laughs> she's a Lady Deathstrike. <laughs> she's Woman Deathstrike or Women Deathstrike. <laughs> But there you go. This was her first movie. God bless her. She probably thought it was it was all like this. <laughs> she thought it was over. <laughs> Rennie is wandering her way through the Lazarus looking for Toby. He's a little scamp. He runs off in a lot of... Uh, but it, like with anything, you should listen to the dog. This dog's like telling you we need to get away from here. You should probably follow him instead of like dragging him back to your room. <laughs> so she's looking. She interacts. Uh, she comes across Kelly Hugh and Tamara. They're doing blow. I mean, they just have high school students with <laughs> readily available access to what looks to be some pretty decent cocaine. Uh, she delivers with all the gusto of fucking Judy Garland at her absolute peak. Have you guys seen my dog? I think it came through here. <laughs> they say, no, but do you want to hit? And she's like, no, just say no to drugs and then wanders off. Tamara's worried that she's going to rat out to her uncle, though, McCulloch. What kind of is sandwiched in between these two scenes, though, is the white boy that got beat up by Julius is, you know, licking his wounds and kind of rehabbing after their scrap in the sauna. Again, you know, I, I guess cruise ships have saunas, but again, this boat looks like a, a fishing boat, like a freighter ship that was used uh, maybe during the Korean War. But I guess they have a, a sauna built into it and he's relaxing and Jason just comes Don't in. Don't judge a boat by its cover, Alex. Don't judge a boat by its anchor. We should just come up with some <laughs> new expression like that. Jason comes in and like the kills in Friday the 13th and in slasher movies in general. That's the whole point. It's the rolling ball. It's the snowball going downhill. You just got to get more and more crazy. This one is simplistic, but I could not believe that no one had really thought of this up until this point. He just takes a rock from the sun and just jams it into the dude's gut. Flame shoot up. The guy, the guy screams in agony. It's, it's all fun. This is him like taking joy in it right because if the whole point if he's just killing people there are more practical ways of killing this guy but it's like when he killed that girl at the beginning of the movie he took his sweet time like impaling her with that thing he had and then here it's like yeah the guy dies quickly but you're really going for how can i hurt him the most as opposed to how can i kill him the quickest when you grab that super hot rock and like penetrate his chest with it so that's something that i guess my usual view of uh, Jason is just somebody that goes for the practical kill, not the imaginative, artistic kill. Yeah, it's a Jason that is starting to really become aware of what he does and enjoying it. And it's Jason away from home. In the previous movies, you can make the case that it's just Jason protecting his land. You know, Second Amendment. In this one, though, he <laughs> he has realized he's had a taste for teenager. And he said, you know what? Teenager tastes good and no one's coming around here. So I got to go find him. And so he's on the prowl in this one. 
it makes sense that he's going to do the most elaborate over the top kills that he can and take pride and joy in them. And it he's also a, makes he's auditioning. He's like, I really want to impress these guys. <laughs> and it also makes sense the weapons he uses because he's not on his home base. He just has to improvise and make do with what he has. In a little bit here, he just eventually has to just choke someone to death. He looks so disappointed having to do it. He's like, oh, I can't like impale her on anything. <laughs> You're right. This is probably the first time that Jason's been to a sauna. He's like, what the fuck is this? Oh, it's hot. <laughs> It's the first time Jason's been a lot of places in this movie. So that makes sense. Yeah. Like this, he picked up the rock and he's like, maybe he just dropped it on the guy. He didn't actually mean to kill him. He just, <laughs> he was going to give it to him. The mean girls are caught doing coke by Principal McCulloch, who just, God, this is what happens when you have like an actor that was brought up in a classical acting setting and then put him in a bad 80s slasher movie. These girls are just like, yeah, Principal McCulloch, what's going on? He's like, are you doing drugs? It seems like he came up in the time where everyone just, the acting classes were a picture of Charlton Heston and just be this guy. That's what they told everybody. And so even though Kelly Hugh, you know, went on to have a hell of a career, a really good voice acting career as well, he just, when he's on screen, he steals everything away from everyone else except for um julius that the like the most powerful interactions in this movie are between vc dupree who plays julius and peter mark richmond uh but here it's just like he could be playing this exact same character and you know some raunchy some porkies or animal house type movie where he's the you know the dean of the college it's just he nails so perfectly exactly what this role calls for uh he he almost nails something else <laughs> the following scene yeah, I said Jason had a taste for teenager. Jesus Christ. So he catches them. They're not doing drugs. Kelly Hugh has the line of like, I'm a smart student. I wouldn't do drugs. They drop. She drops the mirror, though. But in a lot of cases, I don't know if McCulloch would be streetwise enough to understand that that's how you do cocaine. So I can believe that. But he's he does tell, snuff. He just he only thinks drugs are like big wads of chewing tobacco in your cheek. <laughs> People used to think you could get high off pot just by rubbing it on your body. So he needs to see people like rubbing grass on their face. But he still doesn't like that they're out of their bunk past curfew. And he's like, I'm going to be there. You got to have your biology presentation done. And if it's not, you're not going to get off the ship when we dock. The Wayne character, the Austin hipster, made reference to it earlier that he was helping Tamara out with some devious plan that they had. They blackmail Principal McCulloch. She, her, I guess her bio, biology experiment is she just drew some human organs on her body in bra and panties and then just kind of tackles them and starts making out with them. And Wayne comes in recording it. So she's just like, I get an A now or everyone gets to see this. And he kind of just gives up immediately and then takes it out on Wayne. And he's like, you will never get into film school anywhere. It's funny because they, uh, you know, Wayne takes the tape, the gigantic VHS tape out of the camera. <laughs> And tosses it to uh, to the girl, and she puts it underneath her robe. And I'm like, this is not practical. That no. thing, I mean, yeah, they were sturdy, but they were also, you could fuck them up really easily. And I kind of get the feeling that if he really wanted to, the the teacher, Mr. Shakespeare here, he could have wrestled that gigantic tape out of her. Uh, oh, absolutely. You know, away from her. It's not 2021. These, you know, despite the fact that Wayne looks like someone that you and I see every week, he doesn't have a smartphone. So if. <laughs> McCulloch just decked him and then tackled Tamara and just took it away from her. 
no one's going to believe them. Yeah. And like you said, their plan is so flimsy that it's not a fucking, it's not uploaded to the cloud. Like you said, it's not a USB drive. It's this VHS tape and they're on this big moving box that's surrounded by water. <laughs> this thing, it's not a fail safe plan. Foolproof in no way. Before so you think that the, the, the underlying message is that the principal actually, I mean, he enjoyed it, and he was like, well, maybe someday I can have that tape, so I better not damage it. <laughs> I want I want record of this thing that happened. Is that a recording of me having sex? I'd like a <laughs> copy for my study. Him just like in a robe, like with slippers on, the pipe, watching on a big projector. Just <laughs> a snifter of brandy. Here's the best part. My <laughs> cock comes out. <laughs> So if you didn't think that Tamara was a big enough bitch or an evil enough person, we actually skipped before this. She thinks that Rennie ratted her out to her uncle for snort and blow, which was not the case. And Kelly Hugh, who again is the precocious friend, not even precocious, just kind of like that weird, I'm trying to fit in because this is a popular kid, but I really don't want to be doing these things with them. We, we have all been there. She's been on a writer and Heather's. There you go. Tamara just walks up next to Rennie and throws her off the ship. And she goes, it was an accident, I swear. It's like walking up and shooting her in the head and just being like, I didn't mean to do it. <laughs> I mean, that's even, even if she didn't have the problem with water that she does, that could still, that could still kill her. Yeah, absolutely. Just from impact alone. I mean, it's uh, Julius, you know, to get ahead of ourselves, it's teased that he died just from impact getting thrown off in a similar way. She gets thrown off, terrified, fears she's drowning, sees Jason again underwater, the little kid Jason, like pulling her down and she gets out. So... We understand now that the spirit of Jason is haunting her, but also she has she's deathly afraid of the water. And what this has also done is establish that Tamara is just an evil woman. So we have no sympathy for her in the next scene where she gets stabbed with a piece of a mirror by Jason, right? He pulls a Jack Nicholson in the shining and breaks through the door. And then and then Rob Hedden puts Alfred Hitchcock to shame by staging a shower kill that is a thousand times more impressive than the one in Psycho. Because she comes out of the shower, she's on a robe, then he breaks in, and then he throws her through the the glass door. Yeah, so Tamara meets a fitting end to her. And like we said, this is a bit of a different Jason, whereas we, the audience, aren't really booing everything he does. In this case, (laughs) I just looked at the screen and I said, good. (laughs) (laughs) That's perhaps the most complex aspect of, of this chapter, of chapter eight. This is the one where you start sympathizing with Jason. Or at the very least, you don't hate him anymore. At this point, though, he's just wreaking havoc. He kills the uh, co-captain and the captain, slits the throat of Sean's dad. It's a pretty graphic scene. And the ship just falls into complete disarray. So the surviving members, or at least most of them, you know, the main players, they all convene in the wheelhouse where they start talking about what's going on. Sean's made a call that, you know, the ship's not moving anymore. You know, the Coast Guard may find us if we're not moving because at this point, Jason's starting to tear down all communication towers and antennas. And this is where McCulloch thinks he's like the principal of the ship and starts to, you know, (laughs) kind of take control. And this is where Julius just absolutely shines vc dupree i love this part so much because he starts saying you know let's go find this uh motherfucker and he's got he's like rounding up his posse and mcculloch's like you will go nowhere you will stay here and he just steps up to him and gets in his face and he says school is out mcculloch and then he doesn't break eye contact with him but he starts walking back and he nods his head to his boys so they head out together it's so fucking (laughs) badass See that was cool, but I I felt like the highlight of this whole sequence was uh, was Sean taking charge of the ship in a way that his father would have been proud of. 
it, unfortunately his dad is dead but but he because you know he takes over communications before jason fucks everything up he gets on the the microphone and he issues an alert both wide alert letting people know that something's wrong and then he starts trying to make contact with uh the outside world i, I mean he was doing what he was supposed to do so to me it was just this uh this revelation that this kid actually had it in him to run the ship is just that he was so intimidated by his father earlier in the movie that he couldn't bring himself to do it. That was that was pretty cool. I I, I thought it was a nice moment of vindication for the character. Eva Kelly, who unfortunately is the next to go, she actually gets cinematically speaking, or just from a, a visual perspective, one of the more appealing scenes with the chase scene that ends up kind of at the dance floor where all the students go to party and whatnot. Just from a perspective of colors and the transfer I watched of this was outstanding. So it's a really good sequence. Jason chases her down to the dance floor. It's one of these things. It's a 360 open area, and she just keeps looking at every side to see where he is, and he's not there, and then he just appears. There's an incredible uh, joke from The Simpsons that would come years after this where Bart goes up to his treehouse. He's looking for Millhouse. It's on the Radioactive Man uh, and Fallout Boy episode. He looks at all four corners of the treehouse, and Millhouse isn't there, and then he just looks to the fourth corner again, and he's there all of a sudden. That's kind of what this reminded me of. Jason disappears, grabs her by the throat, and chokes her. The prettiest woman in the film, and the one that probably went on to have the most prosperous career after this, gets the most, probably the most brutal death. Because, you know, all the other ones are really over the top, and this is just, there's nothing really fun about watching someone be strangled. Yeah, he does the thing where he pulls her all the way up, like her feet are dangling. It's pretty bad. I I think that I was a little distracted by, by Jason's teleporting powers, you know, throughout this section, because I was like, oh, man, that's right. He does that. I mean, that's always been in the back of my head. Like, I always think of, of Jason Voorhees as the one slasher that just kind of, you know, you blink and he's 100 meters on the other side. But this is the sequence where really, like, it hammered it home for me. Because, you know, like you said, she keeps looking and he's not there and then he is. Is that something that happened in the other movies? Or is that something that starts developing on this one? He definitely had the teleportation thing down already. But th- this was kind of like a different spin on it. 360 open area and then he kind of just appears. What Hedden did was kind of take an established trope and had a little bit of fun with it. Brought a, a bit of a fresh take on it. Next to be checked off the list is Wayne as he goes looking for JJ. It's been several hours and... I guess he just assumed she was busting out sweet licks in the boiler room the whole time. Uh, So he finally goes down there to check on her. He begins being stalked by Jason. He loses his glasses, and as any character in these movies that needs glasses, he can't see without them. Fortunately, he has his video camera, though. And I know the found footage genre had already kind of been introduced, but it's kind of an interesting break in this movie. You you see this a lot in... um, Doom? (laughs) Doom. You see this a lot in the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street franchise of different segments of the film are presented in different ways, but that's usually for comedic effect. This is definitely one of the scarier sequences of the movie in that, you know, he's just looking through the camera and all it is is black and white and all this flickering going on and he can't really see where he's going. In a movie that thrives on a lot of emotional manipulation and I think just visual power, you know, the, the, it's visual effects and whatnot. This really hit to what the core of this should be, and that's a horror movie. It, as short as the segment is, and the payoff, of course, is is fantastic. But this is definitely one of the more haunting aspects and sequences of the film. I like how it ends, too, because it's just appropriate that he dies next to his friend. The mm-hmm. one person in the ship that he, that cared for him, that, like I said, that, that had his back, and that might still be alive if he had not 
abandoned her to go try to hook up with the with the bitchy girl. You know, she's dead and then he dies right next to her. So that's that was cool. That was a nice end to that little bit of the story. I wish he had like with his dying breath, he just reached and grabbed the guitar and like plucked a tune just to really Play drive it home. <laughs> Stairway to Heaven, just the opening riff and faded away. <laughs> So Julius and his boys band together and they start game planning for what's going to go down. Julius grabs a gun. One of my favorite lines, if not my favorite line in this whole movie is, you know, some of them have just like, you know, their fist, uh, crowbar, you know, just your, your typical weapons in a situation like this when you're forming together a, a posse. And you go, what, what are you going to take, Julius? And he goes, nothing but this gun. <laughs> they head out. It's great, though. This, this movie totally played me because you meet him boxing. And so instantly you're like, this dude's going to box Jason and it's going to be amazing. And then we get to this scene and it looks like he's not going to take a weapon of any kind because, well, he's going to use his fists, right? And then he grabs a gun and you're like, fuck, is he not going to box Jason? And then for a while, it looks like he's not even going to put up a fight <laughs> to Jason. So kudos to Rob Hedden because he really, he fooled me. J jumping a little bit ahead, there is a boxing match in this movie. And it's everything I hoped for. Back in Randy's room, we get the, uh, probably the most defining shot of this movie because it was the thing that was featured on the box art of the VHS. Rennie's in her room. She sees child Jason backs against the wall. Jason comes in through the, the peering window, the, the circular window, and shoots his head in, reaches around, and starts choking her. And that is the shot from Jason Takes Manhattan for people like myself that grew up looking at this VHS in the stores and, you know, just the promotional material for it. Not Jason in Times Square or anything that actually has to do with Manhattan. It's Jason on the boat reaching through and choking Rennie. It's so iconic that uh, it was ripped off by the latest Halloween movie when Jamie Lee Curtis is against the door. And Michael just breaks through the glass on the door and starts choking her from there. You're not lying. Not lying. She fights her way out of that situation, though, stabs him in the fucking eye with this pen that was gifted to her at the beginning of the movie. Stephen King's pen. Yes. Yes, that's right. Not unlike the Titanic, the Lazarus begins to flood. Unlike the Titanic, the water is disgusting. I don't know where they are or what harbor they're in, but... You know, at least on the Titanic, Rose and Jack were swimming through crystal clear water. Uh, it was probably pretty cold, but at least, you know, there was no uh, chance of them getting like an infection. The world was cleaner back then, the 1920s. <laughs> That's right. They we really fucked up the planet in 50 years. There weren't a bunch of hypodermic needles thrown in the water and shit. <laughs> Burger King rappers. As Principal McCulloch begins to see the chaos that is in front of him and realizing he's just waited a bit too long to do anything about it, trying to regain order, and Sean tells him, it's Jason that's doing this. And he says, not another word about Jason, you hear me? Beautiful. <laughs> I can't get over this guy. Peter Mark Richmond just <laughs> approaching this movie with such refined acting skills. Gusto. <laughs> but the ship's going down. They head out. On their way out, they see the deckhand was uh, impaled by Jason. So at this point, McCulloch knows that it's the real deal. So Sean, Colleen, McCulloch, Rennie, the, the four of them board the lifeboat, and Julius uh, shows up. He had been thrown off a, a few minutes earlier by Jason. Uh, we presume dead, but he shows up and gets on the lifeboat with the four of them. So they just start paddling. Uh, make another Simpsons reference. It's the Boy Scouts in the Hood episode where Flanders and uh, his son and Homer and Bart get stranded at sea. They're just kind of aimlessly pedaling along, not knowing where they are. He even tries at one point, Sean does, to use like a, a GPS system. And it's just like, it's the most depressing thing you've ever seen. He like tries to fire it up. It's like, pew, 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 pew. 
<laughs> this is where they find the dog too, right? They rescue Julius and the dog at the same time? Correct, yes. Because Toby is there for the rest of the movie. That was, that was pretty impressive. That's another moment where the, the movie threw me a curveball. Because I thought that in classic horror movie from the 80s fashion, they had killed off the black guy, Julius, and the dog was gone off screen. But instead, they both got rescued by the lifeboat right away. And then I checked, and I was like, this is kind of like the the elephant in the room, the whole like, oh, it's called Jason Takes Manhattan, and it's on a fucking boat, and you know, whatever. I'd been so captivated by everything that was happening in the Lazarus that I'd forgotten about New York. It's not that, oh, I was waiting for us to get there. I was like, oh, shit's happening in the boat, and I'm, I'm in. So honestly, they got on the lifeboat, and... I paused to see how much longer I had of the movie because it felt like it could have it could have ended there and I would have been happy. Like I don't care about the title. I don't care that they don't make it to New York. I mean, just on the re-release call it Jason was going to go to Manhattan. <laughs> Didn't make it. So what I'm saying is like this is the movie works independently of the New York sequences. And this this part where they get to the on the boat it could end there and it would be fine. You know, you already had some cool kills. You had some, uh, a little bit of character arcs. I guess the one thing that's still kind of out in the open is the water trauma. You know, that's not mm-hmm. addressed yet. But up till now, we're, we've kind of had a pretty solid, short, but effective movie uh, set in the boat. The time has come. We've arrived in New York City. They try the GPS. They don't really know where they are. And they just kind of end up by the Statue of Liberty. And Julius is beside himself with joy. He's like, we made it. We made it. <laughs> and, you know, in that moment, he just forgets that, like, everyone else in that ship is dead. And starts singing. Sean's dad. Starts singing New York, New York. And they uh, port. <laughs> of course, McCulloch immediately just chastises them for where he chose to port them. With good cause, though, because they are immediately mugged and robbed when they <laughs> basically they step foot on New York soil. And these two guys come up and hold them up at gunpoint. Uh, they rob them of everything that they have, and then they take Rennie hostage uh, to presumably do some pretty unforgivable things with her. Now the nightmare begins. Forget Jason. <laughs> now you're dealing with New York rapists. Uh, it, it is Who's in a the way, real monster? Yeah. In a way, I mean, this movie is kind of a – it's important in the, because people forget. You forget that New York used to be like this back in the day, and this is kind of a, a time capsule, a, a historic document. Of sorts. Mm-hmm. How is this not in the the film registry? You know, they they push it like uh, what's in there? Braveheart, Saving Private Ryan. Put Jason Takes Manhattan out there on its representation of New York in the eighties. Yeah, you got Midnight Cowboy, Saturday Night Fever, and Jason Takes Manhattan. Like the proper encapsulation of those three decades. I can just imagine that historians two hundred years from now reading over the plot of this movie and going like, man. Jason, that Jason guy, I don't know if I should feel sorry for him or cheer him on or just be disgusted by by what he does. What a character. Just the same way that we talk about, I don't know, complex characters of literature today. (laughs) It's the great Gatsby and Jason Voorhees. The same way that Tony Manero gained appreciation and concern for his fellow man, Jason represented what we lost in our appreciation for our fellow man. I mean, he is the ultimate tourist here in New York. He's never seen anything like this. And his first impulse is to to do the right thing. He saves uh, Reddy from being sexually assaulted. And before we even get to that, Julio, yeah, he's never seen anything like it. And we get like our comedic bit of the movie where Jason, I guess he was just holding on to the lifeboat the whole time. And they never <laughs> noticed this 300-pound man was potentially bogging them down. <laughs> 
But he gets off. At <laughs> He's the, hollow, Alex. Or he just, yeah, just transported. He gets off. He pulls himself up on the deck there. And then he sees the big billboard for, I think it was the minor league hockey team that they had. I might be mistaken. But it's a fucking hockey mask, just like Jason wears. And then <laughs> we get the birth of the Halpert as Jason turns and breaks the fourth wall and looks in the camera. And almost, you can see through the mask Kane Hodder doing like the, the lip curl and the... Mm, I'm home. When you think this movie sets the stage for some, it's like we're just having fun from here on out. We then cut to Rennie being drugged and the attempt of basically a gang rape on her. And then Jason comes and breaks that up. No, this isn't fun. Fun is me, you know, putting her head into an electrical socket and making it blow up. This is not fun. This is not what people paid to see. So you guys got to die. Yeah, this is the one where he he grabs a discarded syringe and he just plunges it through the guy's back all the way through his chest like that means his hand has to be like halfway in there too yes we're talking about how he was taking his time before but this in this one he acts quickly because he knows time is of the essence yeah and then how does he kill the other one the other guy like shoots him and then he i forget oh he just runs his head into like a pole and it shoots up this hot steam that presumably fries his face right right then he turns to rennie and apologizes i'm sorry (laughs) Lost my temper there for a second. Tensions ran hot. (laughs) (laughs) I'm new here. I want to make a bad impression. Rennie escapes. Jason begins chasing the rest of the gang. He chases Julius to a roof. He's chasing. He's like, I can explain. (laughs) Wait. I come bearing gifts. You're my ride home. Chases Julius to a rooftop somewhere, presumably in Toronto. And (laughs) this is where Julius figures that his lifetime of training and the sweet science is going to pay off just starts unloading for an uninterrupted one minute and 16 seconds best sequence in the movie with no gotta fly now or victory none of those songs accompanying him in the background no how you like me now even it's just <laughs> the sound of flesh on flesh as he's just pummeling jason flesh and on mask you, sometimes flesh on plastic what you would think is pummeling into oblivion but jason just stands there and takes it like old school mark hunt in like a k1 fight eventually julius gasses himself out just going for it he just went in way too hard shane carwin versus brock lesnar shane carwin could have learned if he had just watched jason takes manhattan you know (laughs) and eventually julius punches himself out and stands up and goes take your best shot you motherfucker one of the most perfect things that has ever happened in a movie that i have seen in my life is what follows (laughs) Jason sizes him up, grabs him by the collar, throws this big looping right hook. It knocks Julius's head off clean. His head flies off this rooftop onto like an awning below, slides down at an angle into a dumpster. And once it lands in the dumpster, the dumpster lid closes. Fatality. Julio, I know you gore and, you know, this slasher lifestyle is not to you what it is to me, but I think we can both agree from a comedic or just a horror movie standpoint, this is an outstanding achievement. I mean, I told you, it's the best sequence in the movie. It gives me what I was hoping for from the moment that it was introduced, that Julius was introduced as a boxer. And it ends it in the most ridiculously over-the-top and satisfying way. Like, he, because he was one of the best characters, you had to give him a proper death. And him getting his head punched out of his body 
flying in an arch into a dumpster. That's just great. How do you top that? You could argue the movie kind of peaks here. <laughs> you could, but then the rest of the gang gets back together and they find a police officer. If you've watched anything about New York City in these days, that's not that's a hard feat to come by. And then Dude, they get in the cops. Actually, <laughs> the, the cop finds them, right? It, which is, to me, the maybe the most insightful moment in the movie is that the, the teacher... Not the principal, the teacher. She's walking down the street, and the cops like, "Hey, stop!" And you know, he's oh yeah, like he's you're right, arrest you're right. Yeah, yeah, and then the principal goes like, "Oh, she's with me," and then the cop apologizes. So I'm like, did the cop think that she was a hooker, and he was that's why he was going after her? What was it? What was the reason? Why was he being so hostile toward her? But they all get back together, and keep in mind, Rennie's still strung out because she was injected with what I presume is heroin. And then they all cram into the back of the police car, four of them. So it's already piled in like a comedy you would see. And it's at that point of uh, POV shot where it's them like all piled in together. The cop gets in the car and turns the light on, and Julius's head is somehow right there on the dashboard. It, they somehow took the perfect moment and made it more perfect. So do you think that's a deleted scene somewhere? Jason digging through the dumpster <laughs> to recover the head? <laughs> hey, a blender. Once again, apologizing. He's like, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. See, this is perfect, though. I, I lamented and downright complained and vented about my dislike for the scene in the 2018 Halloween where Michael like hollows that cop's head out and then puts it in a flashlight on a pumpkin and just how stupid that was and how uh, he didn't have time to do that because that movie tries to be rooted in some sense of realism. At this mm. point, of course, I believe that Jason somehow got it and put it in that cop car, even though you know he didn't even know that cop was there yet. You know, it's about staying true to your movie. At this point, it's just like, of course, that could happen. So the cop gets strangled as he's trying to call in backup. The four pile out. Uh, Rennie is actually able to get behind the wheel, so she just commandeers this police car and runs down Jason. And, you know, everyone thinks Jason's dead. He takes a pretty good bump off the car, but she keeps going past him because she sees child Jason at the end of this uh, alley and just plows right into him, which, you know, it's a figment of her imagination. So the car goes boom. This is where the movie takes a massive left turn I, I did not see coming. And I welcome because it goes into a pretty wild flashback. Yeah, this kind of knocks her loopy, this crash. And so this is when the movie goes into a flashback sequence of her and her uncle uh, on Crystal Lake, of all things, which I presume was probably, what, 15 years before this? Eh, maybe like 14 or 13. Cause it's hard she, to tell because uh, the principal looks the same. <laughs> his hair is a little browner in the flashback. But Julio, what did you make of this? It really seems like he's just trying to teach his you know, now daughter how to swim and makes it about Jason. It's like, if you can't swim, you're going to die like Jason did. It kind of sums up the theme that we had called out earlier in the movie, right? That the whole idea of like, oh, this is how you face your fears. Oh, you don't know how to swim? You can't learn how to swim? Well, let me throw you into the water and, you know, sink or swim. That kind of tough love that that he exhibits in that flashback, you know, you can translate it into this really weird philosophy of Rennie later when she goes like, oh, well, I'm afraid of water, but I'm going to get on this ship because that's how I, I conquer my, my demons, which again, it's not it's not the right way to do it. So again, the movie turns, you know, flips the script. It's like, well, who's the real monster? Mm -hmm. Jason could just be there to apologize. We don't know. We come back from the flashback and uh, McCulloch's kind of laying amongst the wreckage and we just hear the the big daunting footsteps and he comes to and he looks over and at this point as the audience we haven't seen him yet we know jason's back up and he just goes you you and jason just picks him up 
And you know this motherfucker. At this point, we learned what he did to his, his, you know, his kid, his, you know, for all intents and purposes, adopted daughter. So good. And Jason just starts manhandling him and picks him up. And we, the audience, are like, "Kill him, kill him!" And so it's perfect that he has the most undignified death in the entire movie, where he's just like wailing and begging for forgiveness and gets dumped headfirst into a vat of toxic waste. Because of course, it's New York City. There's just vats of toxic waste all over the place. Half of them kill you, half of them give you superpowers. The ooze is what gives you secret powers. So around this time, because we've been in New York for a while, it, it was, it, dude, it was so perfect. Because we've been, other than the Statue of Liberty, we haven't really seen anything that you would call uh, a New York landmark, right? Mm-hmm. They, they didn't like walk past, I don't know, like a, a theater that was showing cats or the Phantom of the Opera. You can go pi- past like a cat's deli. And and then, you know, I'm like, well, that's cool. They're avoiding like the all the... All the landmarks. But then there's this glorious, like, opening. Julio, I like where you're heading because that's definitely, like, the shot of the movie. From a cinematic (laughs) perspective, I had mentioned earlier the the reaching in and choking. That's kind of the most memorable thing for me and a lot of children uh, or a lot of people that were kids when this came out. But before we get to Times Square, we get the subway chase scene where he chases Rennie and Sean down in the subway. They hop on a one of the trains that comes through. Full motion at this point, nonstop. Let's paint the people of New York City and the city of New York City as just no one cares. No one sells Jason at all. And there's the part where Jason like <laughs> backs them into the corner towards the emergency exit, and Rennie just screams, help! And someone just wakes up out of sleeping and looks at her like, what the fuck? Like, what's your problem? Jason even like knocks someone down, and they're just like, ugh. And so it's they slimy. slam they slam on the brakes. They evacuate the uh, the cart. Everyone else there is just annoyed. I think one guy even goes, "Is this my stop?" When they slam on the emergency brakes, <laughs> Jason gets out. They tackle him onto like where the the tracks meet, where the electrical current is strongest. Electrocutes him. They think he's dead. Now to Julio, what you're talking about. We shy away from so much in New York in this movie, and it pays it off perfectly. It takes us back to the beginning in the opening credits as Sean and Rennie come up through the you know the underground stairwell out of the subway, and we get this long, it's, it's a full 360 shot. It's clearly a crane shot that starts and comes up, and we get a full 360 retrospective of 1989 Times Square, and it is glorious. That's that's where the money went. It made the whole movie seem worthwhile. The fact that like I, you think you're going to be seeing this movie in New York and it's not. It it's all for that one shot. You know, it's the the snow leopard in Secret Life of Walter Mitty. And you have to build up to it. That's the thing. So full tilt now. We're in Times Square. Jason just we don't even get the dramatic like Undertaker setup. He just shows back up in Times Square. Like he comes up there and we get the 360 panning shot of him looking at his victims and begins the march forward they take off running again no one is selling this in times square no one thinks this is out of the ordinary he kicks over the boombox of some local hooligans and this is really uh this movie committed to the okay we're gonna make jason kind of a comedy character a sympathetic comedy character because they're you know the guy pulls out the butterfly knife and we're gonna fuck you up type thing and he just lifts up his mask shows his face he's like you don't know where i'm from i rep camp crystal lake you don't know what that's about. And then so they all take off running. He chases them into a diner many years ago, Julio. Uh, Halloween weekend, uh, friends of our family, Shelby and Dan, came and stayed with my sister and I here at the house. And we went out the night before and partied a bit too hardy. And the hangover the next day was very, very real. And... Uh, we watched this movie as everyone was just like kind of dying on the couch, their respective <laughs> couches. And, 
you know, sipping capfuls of Gatorade, just trying to make it. And when it got to this part, it was at that point where, you know, in the hangover where you're kind of starting to feel drunk again because your system's trying to regroup itself. When they come into the diner and they tell the waitress there that there's some crazy guy trying to kill us. And she says, welcome to New York. The room just like collectively lost it because, you know, we were when the movie started, we were just too dead to emote to anything. And then just kind of slowly throughout the movie commenting to one another about, you know, the happenings and then obviously how much the writer hates New York City. So it's the perfect payoff here when they go into the diner and then she they tell the waitress, hey, someone's trying to kill us and, you know, welcome to New York. But then what makes this scene even better, and I remember losing it so hard at that during that watching it, is when Jason comes into the restaurant, no one moves. Like he breaks <laughs> down the door and then the line cook comes out from the kitchen and looks like this is something he deals with on a daily basis and just, you know, fuck this, gets in his face, you son of a bitch. And then Jason, of course, hurls him across the bar and, you know, takes him out. And then it just kind of resumes what they were doing. But this 30 seconds here is sequence of comedy that I have such a high regard for that I can only hope you got at least a hearty chuckle out of this. It might be the last time I laughed in the movie because it gets it gets pretty dark from here on. <laughs> the chase leads its way into the sewers of New York. We're under Times Square at this point, and they run into um, a public works worker, city worker or something who's working on the, the sewers and said, you know, can you help us get out of here? And he says, yeah, not a minute too soon. The place is about to flood. Floods with toxic waste every night at midnight. I don't <laughs> think this is a real thing that ever happened. I don't know, man. It was rough in New York. How do you explain all the giant lizards and giant spiders that live underneath? Toxic waste. The radioactive spiders that roam the city <laughs> to protect it. The city workers trying to help him out of the sewer, and Jason appears once again, and then we get like this insane art house kill. As if this movie hasn't had like an identity crisis in every good way up until this point, we get this really you know, avant-garde killing where we see the silhouette of him raising up very slowly, you know, a wrench bashes his dude in the head, blood splatters. It's like a black and white scene, but then the red blood splatters on the wall. It, you don't have really enough time to register it, Julio. And with it being your first time watching this, I don't expect you to really uh, have retained too much of it, but it's really put in there for, you know, the fans, the, the people that go back on rewatches. It was put there for the GIF. Years from now, decades from now, people are going to be grabbing little pieces of, of the movie and putting them online. And this one this one will be worth it. Worth that preserving. is the Criterion cover. Yes. No, no, it's not the cover. <laughs> the cover would have to be Jason, like a production still of Kane Hodder and uh, Times Square. The This kill will be the disc art, you know, when you open it up and what you see on the disc. Yes. So this was where we've kind of been given the pieces to put the puzzle together and this is the final moment we put the final piece there and like what does it look like because yeah he kills the the worker and he knocks sean out slams him against the door and so now it's just jason and rennie and this is where she actually overcomes her fear in this final confrontation because it turns out that, yeah, it had nothing to do. It wasn't about the water. It was about the undead child <laughs> that had spooked her back then. That undead child now being a grown-ass man. And so it's really not about getting on a boat or trying to learn how to swim. It's about going head-to-head -head against Jason. That was the missing piece. That was like the thing that, that was needed to round this movie out. And uh, and it happens. And it's great. Like, she 
She saves the day. She beats Jason. It's a race against time as they know the toxic waste is a coming. They get on the escape path, basically the emergency exit. We're trying to push up against the grate. Jason comes up and grabs on. He's unmasked in the process and just starts wailing like a fucking, like that episode of The Office where Jim catches Dwight crying in his bedroom. Just, <laughs> and when he hears the water coming, Kane Hodder has this incredible cell where he just kind of like tilts his head a little bit and then realizes what's happening and goes full like uh, spit take like, to the side. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. And then he just gets so scared of the water, he starts throwing up water, which that was like really Kane Hodder. He just, before the takes that, I guess he just drank like a gallon of water and like so much so that his body just rejected it. That's why it's like so clear. It's pretty gross. That's a, yeah, one of the outtakes of the movie is him like puking consistently. Had to be a fun day, have all that makeup on and just puking for the sake of this fucking movie. Water comes through, washes him away, and then the kid is all that remains. I mean, it's not water. It's toxic waste. You're right. The The toxic waste washes away the facade of Jason, and now that all is left is he is a child once again to live life to the fullest every day. <laughs> I, I'm glad they didn't like, spell this out, but those of us who are paying attention know this. It's kind of a, you know, it's a victory for Sean and Rennie, and Rennie but not really, because there is no way that they escape this without serious consequences to their health. They were right up there, the, this sea of toxic waste that burned Jason away. I mean, they were right there too, inhaling those fumes. I don't know, I give them like 10 years tops. There's a reason why they're not in uh, Jason Goes to Hell. Rennie and Sean get back to the surface, walking through Times Square. They begin rekindling their love from the beginning of the movie. We get the romantic ending, and then we get the one last scare where we see the POV shot of someone running up on them. think it might be Jason, but no, it's, it's Toby. In the city that never sleeps, he found... Uh, his owners once again, and we're all together. As uh, Much like the beginning of the movie, Stan Meisner takes us out with the power of the night. Again, at this point in time, who knew what was next? And after the box office return came back, it was appearing that Friday the 13th was dead in the water, in this case, the toxic waste. So, Julio, there was a point in time where this appeared to be the end of the Friday the 13th franchise, and I couldn't think of a more dignified way for Jason to go out. It was ironic, because... The movie's called Jason Takes Manhattan, but in the end, Manhattan takes Jason <laughs> until the next one. Uh, going from the 80s, having a Friday the 13th movie every year, with the exception of 1983, to having two over the course of a 13-year span, it was definitely a stark contrast. All right, Julio, we have boarded the Lazarus. We visited New York, and now we're done. I think it's time for us to move along to Real Talk. Let's head back to Crystal Lake for some real talk. The term deranged sociopath <laughs> gets thrown around a lot by the media, but it really applies to my next guest. Starting today, you can see him in Friday the 13th, Part 8. Jason Takes Manhattan. Please welcome Jason. I've noticed, I see all your movies, man. And you know what I've really noticed? You're angry. <laughs> and I, I don't mean to laugh, excuse me, it's just the way I am. But 
you 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 you're angry what happened man where did it all begin you know what i mean was it a woman uh, did you get cut from the hockey team in high school and we are back but before we get into real talk Let's go into PP, our patron pitch, the segment where we tell our patrons what they can expect on our patron channel, and we let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. This time around, in addition to the usual stuff, we have our cutting room floor segment where we give you the stuff that doesn't make it into the episode, and then we have uh, bonus episodes this month, actually our bonus episode that's just for patrons is going to be on the 2019 Little Women, uh, and that's courtesy of patron Chas Fisher who I guess set out to torture Alex somehow after listening to our episode covering Little oh, yeah. Women in 1994. Yep. Hey, he's demanding it Alex, so it has to happen. Chas also is uh has decided which bonus episode we're doing for everybody on the official feed and we will be doing uh Getting Square, which is a movie that I'm pretty sure he recommended to us ages ago. The first time that he uh he was on the show, and uh, I still haven't seen it, Alex. So <laughs> it's finally happening. It's happening on the contrary. It's courtesy of our patron channel. And then, of course, we oh, have... Oh, great. Sam Worthington's in it. Yep. Yeah. Maybe this is the one that just wins you over, finally. On his, you know, that just must be how it came it. up, just my incessant burial of him on the Terminator <laughs> franchise. <laughs> if Friday 13th Part 8 has taught us anything, is that <laughs> everybody deserves a second chance or a third chance. And then we have, of course, Contrarians After Hours. That's the segment where we tell you about all the stuff that we've been watching, that we've been reading, that we've been playing. What are you bringing to the After Hours segment this time, Alex? Well, Julio, anyone that follows me on Twitter saw from last weekend, my birthday weekend, I got myself quite a haul from the Elgin Flea Market. Elgin is a smaller city in Texas where my parents live, and I... Went out there to get myself a pedicure to treat myself for my birthday. And then they have a uh, thrift store and a flea market on their main street that I went to. <laughs> I in thought you were going to say in the same place. <laughs> <laughs> and you can buy a cat there, too. <laughs> I went there in my never-ending quest to get a fucking VCR. And did not have a VCR. But, man, Julio, you ever been to like a small-town flea market? I'm from Peru. Well, it's, it's a that's flea true, market but, like, overall. As you've brought, you've come bearing gifts before with like bootlegs and shit. But like <laughs> the best one I've ever been to was this flea market in Richmond, Indiana. That was just, in, I was in heaven. But anyway, the the flea market and the thrift store in Elgin, also for people like you and I, more so me, because I'm even heavier on the, the physical media than you are, just treasure trove. Like I own The Crow already on Blu ray, but they had the original Dimension DVD release for a dollar. So I was like, yep, I'm going to buy that. <laughs> and I got The Village for 50 cents just because I had never seen it. We had just talked about it recently, six cents. Anyway, I got a huge haul. And I also got the untitled edition of Almost Famous, which I had been looking for for quite some time. And now that's and a fine. That. How much did you pay for that? A uh, dollar, I think. Jesus. It's just, that's what the, these flea markets do, man. Like the people who own the booths at these, they just have like. Like the the one I went to, there was just a whole aisle of DVDs, and it's just you know five hundred super bads that you have to sift through to find, you know what else is in there. So I came away with I think I got like ten or twelve movies. You can get Patrick Fugit himself for five dollars. 
That was a good haul. And for anyone, longtime listeners and followers of mine, uh, my mom got me a VCR for my birthday, which was, as I mentioned, last weekend. So my quest, while I didn't get what I went for, I ended up spending you know $20 and got a dozen movies. That worked out fine for me. Also got source code on Blu-ray, which I've been looking for for a while for three bucks. Uh, Secret Life of Walter Mitty on Blu-ray for, I think that one was four bucks. But it was a, a very fruitful weekend. That will not be what's being discussed on uh, After Hours, though. I just wanted to make sure I got that story in because everyone knows I'm the physical media nut. While we were recording Daddy Daycare last weekend, and we started talking, uh, and by we, I mean I, started talking about Rachel Harris. And I think the majority of that didn't even make the episode where you were just saying that she was my Rachel Vice. Uh, <laughs> while we were recording, I pulled up on Amazon Natural Selection on Blu-ray. Uh, to see because some for the long time that movie's never really been available on physical media and it was actually on Amazon and so like after we stopped recording last weekend I ordered it it came in I rewatched it over the weekend I've talked about that movie somewhat before on here but I'm gonna have a more extrapolated discussion in after hours on our patron and then I'm gonna convince Julio to watch it on Amazon Prime so he and I can eventually have a joint discussion about it I like it Alex you I know you've watch animal house and you probably <laughs> you've probably seen like uh i know caddyshack you've quoted before and then well i don't know about the uh, national lampoon vacation like the first one i don't mean to turn anybody off with this but i'm not that big of a chevy chase guy hey that's who i am hey half the people in community uh agree with you so <laughs> i was about to say uh community is probably my favorite thing of chevy chase because pierce is fucking hilarious I, I agree. I watched uh, this movie, A Futile and Stupid Gesture, on Netflix. Do you know what I'm talking about? I've heard of that. Refresh me. So it's a biopic. It's a comedic biopic. It stars Will Forte as one of the founders of National Lampoon, the magazine. And it just basically tells the story of his life. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's directed by a uh, guy that did Role Models. David Wayne? David Wayne. And he has just a cavalcade of comedic actors just going in and out of the movie and it's like oh that guy and that guy and that guy speaking of chevy chase joel McHale plays chevy chase which is amazing <laughs> it was really funny I, i'm I'll, I'll tell you all about it and, and might convince you to watch it and then like i i don't think it actually is on an episode but i know i brought it up at some point when we we're recording i've been playing mortal kombat 11 because it was on sale mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, and I bought it, and now I've been kind of just teetering on falling down the rabbit hole of just devoting all my free time to it, which is not what I need to do. But I've been <laughs> putting in the hours, and uh, already finished the story mode. Uh, anyway, I just I just want to talk to you about that uh, for a little bit. So, 2011 Natural Selection, Mortal Kombat 11, and A Future on Stupid Gesture, all in our After Hours segment. Go to patreon.com slash prime and you'll see all our tiers. You can decide what you want to contribute if you want to contribute. As you should. Shit's getting expensive these days, man. I think I said in our last one, for the price of a soda, and that's about where it is. For the price of a soda, you can check out our patron. Check out all the exclusive content that we have there. The more you pay, the more you get. You can eventually demand us to do some uh, episodes, some coverage. Who knows? Maybe you want a, uh, a commentary track on Jason Takes Manhattan. Because I know Julio, all he wants to do is rewatch this movie. <laughs> Maybe this time I'll, I'll watch whatever version you have that actually has the full title. Instead of this just Manhattan version which is maybe was a little too economical for me. But yes, we love all our patrons. We accept any and all new ones. Thank you guys so much. 
be sure to head over there and check it out. If you have any suggestions, questions, comments, concerns, you know how to get a hold of us. Bringing us to the main event of Friday the 13th, part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan. Oh, boy. <laughs> Alex, as we were getting ready to start on Real Talk before we hit record, you seemed somewhat convinced that you knew how I felt about this movie. So tell me, Alex, how do you think I feel about this movie? I don't know what about this movie would be for you. And, you know, it's such a it's such a fine line that you and I have. Well, I guess I should rephrase that and say you and I have consistently called out and, you know, theorized and basically made it apparent that for you and I, there is a, just the fine line that separates the the rooms of the world and the movies that are so bad that we you and I can't really even enjoy anything from them and then the movies that are just bad and fun now the line for you isn't <laughs> as thin as it is for me like you know I have like this teetering act that I do with these with a movie like Jason Takes Manhattan and then those ones that we've referenced before that this just sucks you seem to I've never heard you say like what I say a lot which is it's bad but I like it and so <laughs> That's just that's, that's just hubris on my part. It's like I like it, therefore it can't be bad. That's that's fair. <laughs> See, and that's like a jumping off point. And then like I as I learned at the beginning of our contrarian's corner that I did not know going in that you haven't seen any of them going into this like beforehand. So, you don't even have like that fun nostalgic sense. And by any of them I mean the ones that preceded this the ones that matter the classics (laughs) yeah exactly when paramount still owned friday the 13th so there wasn't the three movies in a row where they couldn't call them friday the 13th (laughs) so anyway knowing all that knowing how you traditionally feel about horror movies you did think halloween 4 was okay which is good because but then again halloween 4 is a much better movie than this is yeah then there's not even really a singular performance that i can point to that i think you would like in this i think you'll most likely say there's a couple parts in it that are funny both intentionally and unintentionally you'll likely think it was too long because that last like 20 minutes does feel kind of disjointed (laughs) and the ending is really stupid and makes no sense (laughs) <laughs> and then on top of that, just the whole not having any real nostalgia attached to it. Yeah, this I, I don't think you and I are going to be on the same page with this one. But did you think this before this last rewatch I, or, or was that like sinking in as you were watching it again? I honestly thought you had had uh, at least a couple under your belt of the others to know kind of what to expect. <laughs> So that kind of shook the foundation of my thoughts. I did think watching it earlier, I was like, he would get more out of this watching it with me. The, the no holds barred thing, like oh, we yeah. always talked about with Ready to Rumble. You got enjoyment out of that because you had like the running commentary track with me and with you there. That would have been provided with this as well. Yeah, it's just so weird. It's one of those things of like, you spend so much time in your bubble that when you start to think of like people outside of it, like this movie and like Lillian watched it, my sister watched it with me and she and I have like the lines we quote along with it and laugh at. And, you know, we always really look forward to the scene where Julius punches him for a minute uninterrupted. So yeah, I mean, my sister have like our affinity for it. Uh, myself and Reed, uh, we went and saw this at the draft house on a terror Tuesday and it was a 35 millimeter screening of it. And one, you know how cool that is for people like me, but two, when they had reached out to Paramount about showing it, Paramount reached back because basically 
for those that don't know what I'm talking about, when you know independent movie theaters do special screenings of movies, they basically have to reach out to the film studio that owns it and say, "Hey, we want to do this." So they have to pay whatever licensing fee or you know what they need to do to get the movie to show it. So when they reached out to Paramount, Paramount came back at them and said, "Hey, we have this 35 millimeter print that never got shown anywhere, or screened anywhere. You guys want it?" <laughs> and and so Reed and myself just went thinking we were going to see a beat up print of. Jason takes Manhattan and it was a film, a 35 millimeter film print from 1989 that had never been screened anywhere. So the theater built it up and showed it for the first time ever that night. And it was beautiful. (laughs) So I have like that compounded with it again, the VHS box from when I was a kid, it's up there with frighteners and uh, Nightmare on Street 5, The Dream Child, and like American Beauty, and you know, all these box arts that I clearly remember just looking at repeatedly over and over again. So there's so much in that vein. And then, you know, I told a little story about you know, the, the hangover uh, incident watching it. And um, even Julio, you know, you've been to my house. I have the theatrical poster for this movie framed, it's like an original version of it that I got at um, a garage sale across the street from my grandma Lois uh, back when she was still with us there, her neighbors were having a garage sale and I walked over there and uh, I was 14, 15 probably. And it was one of those things. It's hilarious now because I know exactly what was going on at the time. I was just like, well, this is crazy. He had like 30 Jason takes Manhattan posters selling them for 50 cents each and they're full size movie posters, you know, in theaters this summer type thing. And there was like five movies that he had all this shit from. And it was like, oh, he either worked at a theater or a video store and just took all this shit and is selling it for a profit now. So me and 20 other kids in the neighborhood of uh, St. Francis and Dallas, Texas now have a Jason Takes Manhattan poster hanging up in their house because of this. <laughs> it's um, Obviously, I say all that to say it is definitely of a franchise. I have like a heavy, heavy, heavy uh sentimental attachment to it's it's definitely up there which is funny because it's not one of the ones that was on tv when i was a kid that's probably the weirdest thing about it was it wasn't it wasn't halloween 4 and it wasn't um you know jason lives it wasn't one that i grew up watching repeatedly but it's definitely the one i've watched the most since my adult life i understand these types of things mean nothing to you (laughs) and so uh, at least No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. From your perspective of watching it, you, they they mean nothing to you, and I mean that in the sense of you don't have any of this accompanying it. So, <laughs> you poor bastard just went into this, and you're watching it, and you're like, "Why did Alex do this to me? Why? Why did he make me watch this? This is what I'm thinking you're gonna tell me that it sucks, and I would be shocked if you tell me you got through it all in one sitting." <laughs> Oh, my God. How about before I tell you exactly how I feel about the movie, I read you the three quotes I have left from Run Tomatoes. To set let's the do stage. it. So you went and found the people that liked it besides me and Reed. And let's see what they said <laughs> yes. about it. Besides you and Reed and apparently Ben from Film Busters. And, and actually, and a couple mm. other people that just responded to to my screenshot with a lot of enthusiasm. To be Twitter. fair, Ben knows what's up. That's <laughs> He also has a poster somewhere. Uh, all right. So Trevor Johnston from Time Out, there's a fresh quote. And he says, for what it's worth, in parentheses, very little, probably the best in the series. I don't think you agree mm. with that, do you? No. Okay. Steve, Uncle Creepy Barton from Dread Central. Oh, boy. He says, taking the serial killer and putting him on a boat isn't the silliest thing you could do. 
you could always send him to space. Obviously, this was. I'm what assuming, year was that written? <laughs> this was written. Yeah, it's. This might be also 1998. Doesn't have a date, but yeah, I, I don't think he was predicting Jason X. Right? There's no way. I mean that that was for the longest time. That was like John Carpenter said he wanted to send Michael Myers into space, like as a joke, and so that I think that was always joked about at film studios, but no one ever thought anyone would be stupid enough to actually do it. And then Todd Farmer came along in 2002 and said, hold my new metal CD. <laughs> well, unfortunately, when you click on the review, it takes you to a page note not found. So I guess we, we shall never know what Uncle Creepy takes Manhattan? Uncle Creepy, maybe he was a, a prophet or maybe he was just some dude that decided to leave a review for Jason Takes Manhattan after watching Jason X. And finally, this one is rotten. Heather Wixon from Dread Central also says, Overall, as a horror fan, even the weakest of movies can still hold a place in my heart, and Jason Takes Manhattan is definitely one of them. Figure out close with that one, because she sounds like your type of girl. Yep. I was not perplexed by your choice of movie, uh, because you've talked about it before, and I am familiar with the with the franchise, just not in the chronological order that probably could have served me better in this case. I have a certain expectation when it comes to slasher movies, and this kind of like fit the mold. When you talk about something like Ready to Rumble, I truly didn't know what to expect other than a bad movie. And even mm-hmm. then, what I got was much worse than what I expected. <laughs> and it was just a punishing experience. I mean, that was just... But in this case, it's not... You know, I don't sit back and wonder, like, why do people like this? Like, I was not... When, when I was getting those tweets earlier today... And last night, were people like excited about the movie, or kind of just at least joking about it as something that it, that they were thinking of fondly? Like I was not like, wow, what, what's going on? I understand why people would like this movie. I can see why it would be fun. You are right. It's not. I struggled <laughs> through it, not to the point where I had to take a break. I mean, not a break in the sense that I didn't like stop the movie and started watching something else or start playing Mortal Kombat or went for a walk but i i paused a lot i paused and like played with my phone for a little bit and it didn't help that last night like the you know it was raining and it was the dog was kind of like nervous because of the rain so he was kind of being extra needy and mm-hmm. so he was like he kept trying to lick my notes <laughs> as i was writing so that was annoying so that might have also had me a little bit on edge maybe made me less patient with the movie than i would have been like under normal circumstances. And also, like you said, there are some movies that are just best enjoyed with someone else, especially someone else that really likes the movie. So I think that one of the reasons why I liked Halloween 4 was because I watched it with you and Reed, and it was just, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it would have dragged a little bit for me, uh, especially given how little I knew about the franchise at the time, but because you two were there and you were pointing out stuff and making jokes to make it go more smoothly than... That helped. And, and here, yeah, it was just that thing where, I mean, I didn't care for a single character in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, kill them all and kill them all quickly. <laughs> it's not that I don't have a relationship with the franchise because I watched Jason Goes to Hell when I was, you know, I don't know, maybe 13 or 14. And I remember thinking it was cool. I don't know that I would feel the same way now, but at the time it was the... It was the first Friday 13th movie that I watched beginning to end. I thought the movie was cool, and I thought that I was cool because I'd watched the movie. 
from what I remember, I haven't seen the movie since, but from what I remember, like the kills were very amusing. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, when I said I watched it, it's like I watched several times over like the span of a week or whatever, you know. And I I like the story. Like I felt that there was a plot that there's not really much of a plot in this movie. Like just to to try to compare to something with a degree of fairness, right? Comparing two Friday Thirteen movies that actually go like one after the other. From what I remember, Jason Goes to Hell has a story. There's like a, a very clear objective of like what do we need to do to get rid of Jason, and then that thing gets done, and then he goes to hell. <laughs> Kind of. Yeah, kind of. Like, Freddy pulls him down, or whatever happens. Like, she... Well, Jason dies in the first ten minutes of that movie, and then it's discovered that it's just, it's a curse. It's not Jason himself. It's a curse that's passed on. Right. The dude eats his brain, or his kidney, or something, and it just goes and goes. But then at the end, it's Jason again, and then she... I remember she, like, plunges the knife or the dagger, or the magical dagger on him, and then she yeah. kicks it. And then <laughs> All he, the sparks and And shit then he lights up. But, but anyway, and, and I remember... The black dude with the cowboy hat in that movie, just going around, kind of like just telling people about the lore. And then I remember that scene where he's breaking the the boyfriend's fingers. There's like the last bit of information, and the boyfriend just gives him his hand. It's like, okay, break another one. And then the the black cowboy kind of like looks impressed, and he's like, okay, you get this one for free. Like that stuff, I remember. Like I remember from so many years ago. You know, that made an impression. It was just, it felt like yeah. something memorable that was happening in that movie. And uh, I didn't really get any of that watching this movie. Like the 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 boxing match between Jason and Julius, that comes close. But I think the movie mm. had worn me out so much that it was like, even though I was like, oh, cool, it's finally happening. I didn't really get to enjoy it as much. I'm trying to think if there's like any other moment that was... Now that I know that that actress goes on to be sort of Lady Deathstrike in X-Men, yeah. I probably would get more more enjoyment out of her scenes just knowing that these were her beginnings and then she went on to be in a Mm -hmm. big studio movie superhero movie she's so just like innocent in every (laughs) sense it's yeah it's something else uh i agree that the the big reveal when they come out to Times square is pretty awesome i like that and i did laugh i wasn't kidding contrast corner i did laugh at the welcome to new york joke but i think that that's about it as far as like highlights like none of that I don't know. Maybe if I'd seen that this movie when I was that young, instead of watching Jason Goes to Hell, I would have walked away with kind of the same experience of like, man, that was awesome. Uh, yeah. But as it stands, you know, I think of Jason Goes to Hell. I think of Jason X. I even think of uh, the Friday Thirteenth remake as things that kind of like stuck in my memory. Yeah, that's actually that's not fair. The Friday Thirteenth remake is. I couldn't tell you much about it other than my friend Corey hated it's bad. it. <laughs> yeah, it's really bad. He, he that's Jason like at his most. Home Alone-ish, where he's setting up traps and yeah, it's he's like he, he he's a weed farmer that has like all these booby traps set and can run and I uh, I rewatched that in the past probably five years or so to try to see if I was too harsh on it the first go around and I wasn't harsh enough on it. <laughs> it's like one of those that I own it because it's in the box set that I got and I'm fine with that, but it's like the one disc that's never going to get taken out of the case because I have literally no interest in ever watching that again. It it hurt my feelings, that movie did. <laughs> it betrayed you. But you know what? You know what? It is not as bad as the... Jackie Earl Haley Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Because <laughs> that one offends your sensibilities. <laughs> well, you and I talked about that. It's just nasty. It's just like, why? What? It, it took us to a place that we thought we wanted the franchise to take us, and then we were upset when it did. Okay. 
Somebody had to do it. So yes, I, I did not enjoy watching this movie. Part of me felt bad. I wasn't even mad at you, Alex. I just felt bad. I felt that I was going to disappoint you because I wasn't enjoying it. No. <laughs> I was like, man, he, he always speaks with such love about... Dude, it's, it, it's, it's like the wrestling thing. I've had you over to watch wrestling with me before, and it's been fun uh, when we've had some drinks and, like, you know, we can joke about what's happening. But if I sent you a YouTube link, it was like, hey, you need to watch this match of um, Masawa versus Kawada. I'm not going to expect to talk to you and you'd be like, oh, man, that was something. <laughs> You're just going to be like, yeah, these Japanese dudes just fell on their head a bunch. I don't really get it. <laughs> it. You know, I was thinking about this as we've been talking. I was trying to think of like something you could equate it to because these these movies now that were adults, like fully grown humans, it's like I can't expect you or, you know, just just say Eddie or someone in our circle of friends, Brandon Curtis. I can't say like, Hey, watch this cover to cover. This being, you know, the Friday the 13th franchise, you're going to love it. I can't expect that to happen. Like (laughs) I've never heard of someone getting into these movies, like as a fully fledged adult, it has the majority of people I know were either, you know, people like me and Reed that grew up with the edited for TV versions of these movies as kids and, you know, the NES game and, you know, just kind of the look and the feel of it all and the appeal that way. Or, you know, people who are 10 years older than me who were, you know, 18 watching these movies in the theater and, you know, kind of experiencing that as it all happened. So it feels like you're living through kind of a piece of history type thing. I was thinking about what you could equate that to in a modern setting I don't even think Saw because Saw focuses and is so reliant on just absolute disgusting hyper violence that is one of those that someone could watch and be like, oh, yeah, I kind of I kind of get that because, it, you know, it's kind of gross and you can turn away from the screen, that type of thing. I honestly think that what this generation's version of things like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street will be is Fast and the Furious, because eventually when those movies end 20, 30 years from now someone who grew up with them as kids or watch them happen in real time will tell someone, Hey, watch these. And they'll be like, I don't, I don't get it. Like they feel like <laughs> they missed, you know what I'm trying to say? Yes. They feel like they missed out on something. Yep. And so I, I say all that to say that I get where you're coming from. I'm very pleased you made it through in one sitting. My hope was that you just had a few laughs and you came away with like the, the feeling of like, what is this? Because it's it's not a, a particularly well told story, but it's just it's so preposterous, and the acting levels range so dramatically from mostly bad to like you know the homeboy that I called out McCulloch, who clearly was came up in like the television acting, and you know like I mentioned a lot of Charlton Heston ism days. The dude who plays Julius V.C. Dupree seems like a guy who had some potential, and his lines are delivered with pretty convincing conviction mm-hmm. in this. And then, like we mentioned, Kelly Who, who came on to be the the star of it. So yeah, the, the dialogue is really laughable at points, and then the delivery makes it even more glaringly bad. And Sean's the biggest, bad. yes, yeah, he Scott Reeves is his name, and he seems like a guy that got by on his looks because he is a a good looking (laughs) dude only did a couple movies after this and then moved on to television he was on chicago hope wasn't that about like a fire no it's a hospital oh okay 
Oh, he's on the King of Queens in 2001. I'll have to track down that episode. Hopefully we can agree on this portion of the movie. No one is a worse actor or actress in this entire fucking movie than the girl who plays Susie at the beginning. <laughs> She's pretty bad. Uh, I don't know if... Is she the worst? I mean, she she might as well be. I, I'm, I don't know, man. I, I think Sean is the worst, actually, because he has more to do, and he he just can't pull it off you know like like i said in the dress corner i think that he has a couple moments that if he was a better actor they would hit harder not that the movie's interested in that at all but the yeah. to see him if you really if he had pulled it off like suddenly actually taking charge of that ship and that group of people that could have been cool it's just that he can't sell it at all but there's two or three moments in the movie where he the script says that he has to he, he's supposed to be taking charge he's supposed to be telling people what to do or leading the, the charge in in their survival and that doesn't come across so so even if he's better a better actor marginally than that girl at the beginning he drops the ball more often because <laughs> he has the ball for longer Julio, a big part of the appeal of this movie also to people like myself and people within like the horror circles is watching it with a veneer of what could have been and kind of picturing in your mind what was originally intended, which again, what I'm saying right now requires so much from the viewer that that's why I, I understand I can never convince you to like do all this research, learn all about this movie, <laughs> then watch it again and think about maybe this could have been this way. Because what I said about in the first portion, we've joked about both on this podcast and off of it before is, is true. <laughs> Rob Hedden thought he was going to have carte blanche to just make whatever he wanted. So the original script, uh, if I recall off the top of my head, had uh, they were going to shoot a scene in the Brooklyn Bridge. They wanted to shoot something uh, more in Times Square. Uh, I can't remember if they're going to do something with the Statue of Liberty directly, but I know the big one was the scene with Julius and Jason was supposed to culminate in a boxing ring in Madison Square Garden. Yes. They were supposed to, <laughs> you see, <laughs> like the movie wanted to embrace just the absolute absurdity of it all, but then Paramount was like, mm, never mind. You get $5 million, make it count. That's a big part of it, watching it in hindsight. Then they had to call uh, Jan Samuel Jackson. Tell them that they can't, aff they couldn't afford him anymore. <laughs> exactly. That's the thing with the Lazarus. Like I've, I've always thought, like that's why that boat looks like shit was because they had to rewrite the movie in two days, and they would just <laughs> get whatever boat we can. <laughs> Cameras start rolling at dawn. I, I like the you call this out in Contrarian's Corner, and I mean, part of me had registered it while watching the movie, but I was also so just so done that I couldn't really have as much fun as I think I should have once they get to New York. Because really, it is pretty amusing, the idea that Jason is walking around being Jason and the and that New York just... It's not that they embrace him, but they don't reject him either. He's just... He becomes another part of New York. <laughs> I think the movie does more with that than I give it credit for, or that I was able to just fully enjoy. Because, like I said, I was, I was kind of done by then. I wish... I, I can imagine how a full movie set in New York... With that angle, taking that approach of like, hey, isn't it cool that he is? This is the the fish out of water version of a Friday Thirteenth movie, and it's like it's still gory and violent, but it's also kind of quirky and just it's a little askew. That that kind of stuff I could roll with, and it feels like there was the potential for that because of what they do, the things they do, and that 
in the last, I don't know, 30 minutes. But yeah, obviously that's not what we got. <laughs> I think I cited Toronto in the first portion once or twice. It was actually Vancouver where they ended up filming it. And that's always been like, <laughs> I was going to say the joke, but it's always been the joke with the most niche audiences. Jason takes Vancouver. That's what I'm trying <laughs> to say. To let people know that you're on the end. Jason takes Vancouver. Uh, yeah, to confirm, yeah, it was um, Madison Square Garden, Brooklyn Bridge, the Statue of Liberty, and the Empire State Building were some of the original shooting locations. And they said, no, sir. Param- I just want to know who the like the fucking intern at Paramount was that called. Uh, Mr. Hedden? Um, <laughs> what? What do I tell him? <laughs> Oh, yeah, your budget's half. Okay, bye. <laughs> so the actual Times Square scenes they had to shoot, If I, so much of this is me just flying off of my knowledge that I've acquired over the years. So could be wrong about this, and I apologize if I am. I feel like I remember they said they had to film that in the middle of the night uh, just to decrease the amount of people that were there, obviously. It's literally the city that never sleeps, so there's always going to be people there. Uh, and so when they actually had to like rope off where they were going to go and, you know, shut down certain sidewalks and whatnot. There were still cra- crowds that would congregate. And on that Crystal Lake Memories uh, documentary, Kane Hodder talks about, he said that was one of his favorite memories ever as Jason because he's in full regalia. And then he would just kind of look up and he's in fucking Times Square and <laughs> take it all in. And then he said sometimes, like, he never broke character. That's something that a lot of people always said about Kane when he was as Jason. When he got in the zone, he was in the zone. But especially since the public was there, he never, he was a worker, baby, a true pro wrestler. He never broke his character, but he said in between takes, he would kind of just stand there, but then he would do the the rapid head tilt over to the audience, <laughs> like the the people watching, and said the place would, like, everyone would just go nuts cheering when he, or he would, like, pick up his machete and shit. So stuff like that's cool. It was the one and, time uh, where he went too far and actually killed a guy. I read uh, in my research for this, like during like the strangulation scene where it was just really uncomfortable when they called cut on set, he just started disco dancing in his Jason outfit just to like make people <laughs> laugh because it was so uncomfortable with what happened. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I've never heard a bad word about Kane Hodder. Uh, but then also, Julio, I'm not sure if you knew this. We might have to use this for the, the screen graphic, the icon for our episode uh kane hotter got in full jason regalia and did an appearance on the Ocinio hall show to promote this uh it's on youtube he just comes out in full jason thing uh, in, in his full jason attire and just sits there and Arsenio asks some questions and he just stares at him <laughs> for like three minutes <laughs> and then you know awesome. eventually Arsenio's jason takes manhattan and theaters this friday so <laughs> And, you know, this movie, the different releases it's had, it's had different commentaries. I know the director, Rob Hedden, does not like it. I think he's even, like, apologized for it in the past. He, he said, like, his original vision of it was, like, this movie that was over two hours and had all these, you know, intricate workings in the actual New York City, which, to a certain extent, I'm kind of bummed we didn't get. But I, I do have this unabashed love for what we did end up getting here in the end. So, I mean, to kind of bring this full circle, we always joke about, you know, you're not the horror one with us. Uh, you're not the horror one of us, excuse me, but th- you like horror movies. It's just this whole slasher genre wasn't as big of a part of your upbringing as it was for me. And so I always feel when I joke about like this and it's like, yeah, it's bad, but I like it. 
I think there's this weird gray area where movies like this, predominantly from the 80s and early 90s, have a place for some people of our generation. And that doesn't necessarily make either side of the argument wrong, but it also would be unfair for people on my side of it to expect someone like yourself who doesn't have that same attachment to enjoy it. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, but I also think that it's just... uh it's kind of unpredictable. I mean, yes, you can you can play the odds and go like, based on everything I know about Julio or someone like Julio, you know, this is going to be a tough sell. Uh, especially, you know, if you'd known like, oh, well, he hasn't even watched the movies leading up to this. But I think that that is just, there's also always a chance that myself or someone like me could still love it because sometimes there's just like that extra bit of quirkiness that just scratches that very particular itch. In this case, that wasn't what happened mm. <laughs> there was no itch that this movie was scratching <laughs> for me but like i mean i watched jason x i don't know it was like either right before moving to austin or just after i moved to austin and so i was a young adult by then or as close to an adult as i could i had a good time i know it's a very different movie but uh i mean i think that that one has like more modern sensibilities and maybe that's part of it too you're more likely to get me with uh, with 90s horror slasher movies than you are with 80s, the 80s sensibilities, which would, you know, explain why I enjoy I enjoy Halloween H2O much more than you do. <laughs> well, f- I guess we're, we, we're figuring that out more and more as we go along as to why that happened the way it did. Yeah. But, but, you know, I mean, so the thing is, Jason X, I mean, I watched it with about as much attachment to the franchise as I did, you know, now with this and... Uh, yeah. And I had a good time. It was it was fun. It was you know, it's not a movie that I seek out, but I, it's not a movie that I would be opposed to rewatching. You know, like I say, it moves faster. It it's just a little more colorful, I guess. It's it's uh feels like it has a little more meat when it comes to the story. That that was like a big thing here. And there was a quote that I didn't pull, but it, that it was just the formula of uh, of the slasher movie where it's just like, well, he kills someone and then he kills someone else and then he kills someone else and he kills someone else and then finally somebody escapes or somebody kills him. That can get pretty repetitive for me. Like, it bores me much faster than it does like somebody who really likes the genre. So, uh, yeah. So if there's not an actual story, not something else that's happening besides the kills, I tune out. So that's also part of it. But I didn't hate this movie, Alex. Uh, I, I, you know, part of my frustration, like I said, was just the dog <laughs> tried to lick my notes. <laughs> it was a personal attachment that you had to it, or a personal issue, I should say. Yeah, yeah. I was, you know, I didn't pay extra for it. Yeah, I did have a, a couple laughs. It's just not a thing. I'm glad that we that I watched it to talk about on the show. If I had watched this on my own, I probably would have been even more frustrated. Yeah, and that's kind of I had my whole speech prepared at the beginning of Real Talk here, just because it does. I do feel like. Uh, in these situations, and I know some of the people listening to it right now are listeners of ours that like it, and you know, on the other side of the equation, they're just kind of ambivalent towards it. So I always feel like I have to have my whole life story prepared about it because it is, it is one of those that of all the horror movies I own has kind of this weird, uh, this weird arc of, of a story throughout my life and an attachment to it. But I do that because people are listening to it, and want to know how I feel about it, and why I have the feelings I do about it. But eventually movies like this, it's like my, with my dad, like I told you about when he got me this box set for Christmas, he was like bummed about it. Cause it was like one of two things I asked for. And so 
I felt I think he felt like he had to get it for me, and he was mad that he like spent money on it. And it's gotten <laughs> to the point with him before where I'm just like, I, you're not going to understand what I'm telling you. You didn't have anything like this growing up in your lifetime, and so there's really nothing I can equate this to because you know all the movies he liked growing up were like Star Wars. So I'm like, yes, those are good. So I get that, but it's the made for TV or the TV versions of movies didn't really exist when you were younger. So I don't really have anything equated to. So it's easier to talk to someone from my own generation about these to say, Oh yeah, it's kind of this, you know, subsect of film that I got into and enjoyed as a kid. And it's kind of lasted into my adulthood, but with people like my dad and even some people that just refuse to kind of see where I'm coming from with these eventually it just gets to a point where it's just like, well, it's just, you know, it's for me. It's not for everybody. It's like the wrestling thing. Like, it's exactly like the wrestling thing. Like, when people think they're hurting my feelings by telling me that, like, Friday the 13th movies suck. They're like, those movies are predictable. I'm like, what? It's like when people try to tell me wrestling's fake. I'm like, since when? When did that happen? And so it's, you know, I know all these things. But, goddamn, dude. Any chance I get to talk about Jason Takes Manhattan? Start quoting Julius and Principal McCulloch? <laughs> Especially we had no, we needed a rotten movie to do. And, you know, like I said, the, I tried to keep the theme alive where we're going from a boat to a train mm-hmm. in our next episode. So it's, uh, I appreciate you being a good sport about it because God knows I watched a lot of Winona Ryder movies. I watched Mr. Deeds for you. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I see how it is. We're comparing that. <laughs> Definitely not comparing that. But uh, I, yeah, Mr. Deeds was not good. See, like, like it happens sometimes. The talking about it with you, much like probably would have been like if I was if I had watched it with you, has made me appreciate it a little more. Like, you know, just have like that little extra bit of fun and uh, maybe joy attached to it, mm-hmm. which is not something that happened with like again going back to one of the worst of the worst is uh, um, No Holds Barred. You know, we talked about No Holds Barred for <laughs> two hours. I finished that recording and I still fucking hated that movie. <laughs> Here, I, I'm just, I, I like hearing, you know, people tell me why they like things that I don't, or, you know, how something works for them that didn't work for me. And even if the reasons are just completely subjective and personal, like in your case, there's so much, like you said, that it just, there's no way that I can travel back in time and, you know, <laughs> make my yeah. younger self invested in the mo- in the franchise so that I can appreciate part eight now. But I can totally see how that that connects dots that explain you know mm. someone's experience with the movie. And and it's not. I mean, it's yeah, it's unique to you, but it's also I'm sure very similar to other people's experiences that you know grew up with it the way that you did. So in a way, the discussion makes it a better movie, which again doesn't happen all the time. You know, it's like that's that's always funny when we do that on these episodes where we end up doing more work for the filmmakers because that's <laughs> happened like not just with you know these shitty movies that I like, but we've talked about real movies and you and I have been like you know we'll have those long pauses that we have to edit out and just be like you know you got a point there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, and I, I'm I'm happy to hear that because I I really that works both ways with you and I even those Marvel movies I your enthusiasm for them was contagious enough that it really can help make you appreciate something, man. If I, you know, the quality of the movie aside, this might be one of those gun to a head top 10 movie posters ever. Just for me that Jason with his knife over seeing New York city with the, that red and blue shimmer on his head and the, 
New York has a new problem. Uh, I know I've told Julio this before, and I'm sure most of you listening who are fans of this movie are aware. The original poster for this was the famous I Heart NY logo with Jason tearing through the heart with his uh, knife uh, or maybe a machete. I can't remember. There's renders of it on the Internet still, but. The uh, uh, New York City Tourism Board didn't care for that too much. Said, <laughs> That's where they drew hey. the line. <laughs> they said, hey, stop it. Yeah, I guess they couldn't do much about the movie. But just taking us out here, Julio, just a few little bits of trivia. Uh, one, I didn't mention what killed this for Paramount was Jason Takes Manhattan had a budget of around $5 million and had a disappointing box office return of $14 million. A far cry from the numbers some of the previous entries were doing. I mean, like I mentioned, the final chapter, I think, did, what, $30 million? The original did $60 million in fucking 1980 money. So the Friday the 13th franchise finally left Paramount. Not the name, though. They're like, hey, you guys, uh, you, you can New Line can have Jason, but they can't have the name. Jason Goes to Hell went on to make $16 million. Jason X, $17 million. And then Freddy vs. Jason made $115 million. Then a couple years later, Paramount was like, hey, let's get that back. Let's, uh, let's take that back. Now. Turns out that we can't do much with just the date. We need Jason. <laughs> Julio, back in the early 80s, one of the – it wasn't a trauma movie, but it was one of those offshoots of just ridiculously fucking dumb and campy horror movies. There was a movie called Saturday the 14th. And it was, uh, the tagline was, if you thought Friday the 13th was bad, just wait for Saturday the 14th. I think it's like, it actually has like full on monsters in it and shit. And lastly, uh, for any Friday the 13th fans and just for general interesting trivia, the line cook who confronts Jason in the, the diner was played by Ken, uh, Kersinger who was the stunt coordinator for the movie and ended up actually playing Jason in Freddy versus Jason. So small world. I thought you were going to say Ken Quapis. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> he, he was the uh, fucking PA on this. <laughs> he, he saw it and he's like, I have a vision. One day Robin Williams will play a priest in about a movie with young people trying to get married. <laughs> it might be your favorite but even you agree that it's not the best. I'm guessing Correct. four is the best, right? Four, yeah, four or one, I would say, are the best. Yeah, it's just, it's this weird, just guttural love I have for this. My buddy uh, Dave has um, a real disdain for this, and he loves the franchise. Uh, and I'd, I've come across that with some people, but for whatever reason, I, I really do have an appreciation for it. But yeah, uh, Jason Lives, uh, which is part six, uh, part four, the final chapter and the first one uh, would definitely be at the top of my lists. So what's your score? How and how how much is it influenced by by just, you know, the feels versus just the cold logical analysis? Well, Julio. If that Friday the 13th video game had stayed online and that I can't remember the name of the studio that was uh, working on it and then just completely abandoned it, the rumor was that one of the stages they were going to release was the Lazarus, where you could like, <laughs> actually play on the ship. Then it would be like an A++++ just because I got to live out killing JJ with a guitar in the, the bowels of the ship. <laughs> Being completely genuine and true to myself and also so I don't lose any credibility as what some people who listen to this would consider a film critic uh, it's a d 
it it doesn't quite cross the line into a failing in my opinion but it's it's poorly written when a movie succeeds because of what i bring to it emotionally and from a place like of a bygone era because i have this affinity for it for growing up it's not like toy story it's not like i watch this and i go man i was so lucky to have a movie this good as a kid to kind of you know grow up on it's a movie i watch and i'm like holy shit this is so stupid but god i just can't help but watch it over and over again because it's so much fun and i i remember reacting to these things you know when i was a teenager that type of thing so it's a d honestly i i with four is probably the one i would give like a b to and that's probably the highest i would go in the whole franchise but we're talking about jason takes manhattan it gets a d no plus no minus just straight in the middle but it is the most perfect d just written every line is straight with perfect curvature and uh sprinkle some glitter on it and you're good to go if if i ever rewatched this movie maybe with you sitting by my side i i might like up its score but i doubt that will ever happen because there's so many other movies (laughs) that we can watch it's true. Yeah, if we were going to do a, a Friday the 13th again, we you've already seen this, so we would have to do like a different one, part six or something, right. part four maybe. And so so it's – and this is how – I was thinking about this last night as, as the movie was over, and I was like, fuck this shit. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, I gave uh, Daddy Daycare a star and a half. And that's a movie that, yes, I wouldn't recommend to anyone. But I never, like, it wasn't as long, you know? It was fluffy. It was just, it was really dumb, but it was just. So if I wanted to be somewhat consistent and follow a logic with my ratings, this needs to be later, uh, lower than that, it, yeah. you know, because it was as long. So it's like, it would be, it's like a star. Now, like, that's the way, like, I think it was Ebert who said once, like, of oh, star ratings. I was like, that way lies madness, because, you know, when you have. 400, 500 star ra- ratings that you've given. Like, there's no way that you can expect some sort of consistency. It's just more like you go with your gut, and that's really you, you should go with your gut, not with you know an analysis of what the previous rankings went. But in this case, because Daddy Daycare is so recent, like my gut and that rating are kind of intertwined. So I'm gonna go with one star, and hopefully that doesn't hurt your feelings much. Definitely does not. I can't remember. Have you ever gone half star on here? Uh, I hope that I gave half a star to No Holes Barred. I like how we've already determined like our our three movies. The lowest are Battlefield Earth, Geely, and Showgirls. But <laughs> no holds barred is the one that I just keep complaining about. I mean, to be fair, I I was the one keeping the Christmas with the Cranks hate alive for so many years. I was the one <laughs> that movie just upset me on just a primal level. So that that can be your no holds barred, and I I completely understand that. So yeah, that's that's respectable. It is what it is. And what it is, is fun if you're kind of in on the joke. And if you're not, it's just kind of like, okay, (laughs) this is a thing that happened and I sat through it. Julio, we're uh, we're turning the ship around, though. We're turning the Lazarus around. We're going back to land and we're going to hop on a train and we're switching gears to a certified fresh film that for whatever reason, has remained a blind spot for me for years. And I'm very excited about this, not only because uh, it's a movie I've really wanted to see uh, for a long time, but also because we have a guest coming on board to uh, join us. That's right. Uh, 
my longtime friend Jocelyn Martin. She has a couple of podcasts of her own, but uh, more importantly, she is a, a fellow screenwriter. She's one of the funniest writers and one of the smartest writers that I know. And I tried to get her on the show years ago when we were doing our, our female filmmakers arc and scheduling was kind of a mess. But now, Alex, we lucked out because she's actually free for the entirety of the month of June. And so I was like, she brought it up. We were talking about podcasting, sharing tips, uh, insider stories. And uh, she was like, you know, you should do Snowpiercer. And then she, before I get a response, she was like, you should do Snowpiercer with me. And I was like, all right, come on. And uh, so that's happening. Unless something else happens next week when we're recording and, and somehow she can't. But hopefully... This works out. It'll be you, me, and Jocelyn talking about the train that never stops. I've seen Snowpiercer, I want to say three times, once in theaters, uh, and I think it'll be a pretty awesome episode. It'll be a, a lot to dig in, and it's very different from uh, Jason Takes Manhattan, in that uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was meant to take place in the train for the entire of the movie, the whole time. Yeah, I think with fucking Chris Evans and Ed Harris, they give you a little more free reign on the budget. <laughs> just just do what you want. <laughs> Captain America, you say? Sure. All right, so that is on deck for episode 134. Wrapping up this episode, moving into perennial plugs. We want to give a shout out, as always, to the festive ears who provide our opening and closing tracks. Hey, kick us off with Last Stand. Take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rothgieser, he's the man behind our logo, behind all the graphics on our webpage, on our Patreon page, on our upcoming merch. Uh, he's a great guy. He uh, has a website, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. This is where you can find links to all his work, his, uh, his podcast, Nación Combi and Marginal. One's about Peruvian current affairs, the other one's about economy. Uh, his novels, he writes... He's written a whole bunch of uh, novels, mostly about zombies. His most recent one is a zombie anthology, short stories written by different authors in Peru. Each story takes place in the region that the Peruvian author is from. It's a pretty cool gimmick. You can reach Hans on Twitter at Mildemonios. You can email him at mildemonios at hotmail.com. Tell him that the Contreras sent you and say hi. And we thank the support of Ms. Zoe Perez, who helps curate our social media game. Uh, specifically our Instagram and Facebook accounts. If you haven't already, be sure to head over to Instagram at Contrarian Prime. Follow us and also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Contrarian Prime. Zoe makes some uh, nice videos for our Facebook page and also some fun graphics and and interactive uh, stories, they call them, on Instagram, behind on the lingo. Whatever the case, Zoe makes them look very good, very professional, and we are very appreciative of the work she does for us. Be sure to follow us on all our social media outlets. With all that being said, that is going to do it. We have ported the Lazarus. We are getting off and we are moving on with our lives. That will do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. You're